0: People want RGP on BOA, so it's going to be a
1: lot of fun. Well, that sounds like it goes together rather well, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah.
2: Ladies and gentlemen!
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal.
0: What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Coming at you just a bit later than usual here this week, long story short, the double episode week Took the wind out of my sails a little bit and then I got overwhelmed with a bunch of off-site stuff. But we're coming back at you here on a Wednesday. Hoping to stick with Wednesdays for the remainder of the season. But you never know what's going to happen here on BOA Audio. We're always sort of topsy-turvy when it comes to the schedule. That's all we have to take care of here this week for in-house notes. So let's get down to business with one of the most requested guests ever for BOA Audio. I'm talking about powerhouse investigator of the connection between rock music and the esoteric R. Gary Patterson. Personally, I really enjoyed this episode, loved taping it, loved talking to R. Gary Patterson. He is a master storyteller, so you are going to hear some amazing tales here from R. Gary Patterson. And most of all, I think you're going to have a lot of fun listening to this week's program. And, folks, that's what BOA Audio is all about, having fun. Let me give you a rundown on what we're going to be talking about. We'll be covering the occult influences on Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones, the mind-control rock star meme, including the recent Lady Gaga addition to that meme, backwards tracks found in music, both intentionally and imagined, The Paul is Dead conspiracy theory, that's the story that really launched our Gary Patterson down the road of esoterica and rock music. He is the man when it comes to that story. He knows that whole conspiracy theory inside and out from top to bottom and has a lot of mind-blowing stuff there. And then we'll get into a whole segment dealing with the mysterious deaths of Notable rock stars Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and Jim Morrison. Fascinating material there that will really have you scratching your head wondering what happened to those music icons. Plus, of course, tons and tons more rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. For those of you who are unfamiliar with R. Gary Patterson, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. R. Gary Patterson is a native Tennessean with a passion for rock and roll. As a published author, his works portray many fascinating events that helped shape musical history, from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll's standing legends. In 1996, Patterson released his first book entitled The Walrus Was Paul. Shortly thereafter, he released his second work, Hellhounds on Their Trail, followed by his third book, Titled Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. In the year 2000, he served as a consultant for VH1 Confidential, which highlighted a number of rock music's most enduring mysteries, and he continues to be a consultant for many of rock radio's premier stations nationwide. Our Gary Patterson has been called the self-styled Fox Mulder of rock and roll, and this year he has formed a production company with two extremely talented producers in Los Angeles, to develop programming for cable and network television. His website is www.rgarrypatterson.com. Pretty simple, all one word, easy to find. rgarrypatterson.com. Check it out. And now, without any further ado, let's quite literally rock and roll. This interview was recorded on March 19, 2010. R. Gary Patterson, talking about rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. On BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of been All of America Audio. Very, very excited about this week's guest. He's been on the list for guests that I've wanted to have on the show probably since the beginning of the program. I'd have to look back at my original list, but I'm pretty sure he has been. And he's somebody I've wanted to interview every season here on the program, but just hadn't really gotten around to doing it yet. And I'm very excited here now since I'm on vacation and taking a month off to tape new episodes that I've tracked him down. And we're going to sit down and discuss his amazing work. He's the author of The Walrus Was Paul, which investigates the Paul is Dead theory that was very popular here in America for quite some time. Probably still is popular in some segments of uh, the population. Uh, Paul McCartney being dead, that was the big theory there for a while. And he also wrote Hellhounds on Their Trail. And his most recent book, although it's been out for a few years now, it's Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. I'm sure many of our listeners are very familiar with him through his appearances on Coast to Coast AM, and I'm very excited to have him here on BOA Audio. R. Gary Patterson, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to be with you, Tim. We've been inundated also with requests to have you on the show over the years, so I'm really excited oh, to get that. People want RGP on BOA, so <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Well, that sounds like it goes together rather well, doesn't exactly,
0: it? Exactly, yeah, for sure. And I should point out your website is rgarypatterson.com. That's where folks can go to check out your stuff. And I guess we'll start out you know, with the origin story. Who is R. Gary Patterson? How did you get interested in rock and roll, obviously, and then... You know, it's sort of a really unique twist on the whole thing to then look at, you know, the myths, the curses, the legends, and all that stuff that's associated with it. I mean, it takes a, a very sort of a interested mind, I guess you'd say, to, to really uh, walk down that path. How'd this all come together?
1: Well, you know, I think I'll start at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's always how you do it. But, you know, basically, I'm from Tennessee, and I grew up in a golden age of renaissance in music. I mean... If you just think about the 60s, I mean, when the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Yardbirds, soul music, uh, the girl bands, the real building, I mean, it was incredible. And music was ever-evolving and ever-changing, and I was a teenager. I remember growing up, being in elementary school, junior high, following it, and following the bands. And when I saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show on February 9, 1964, I knew I had to learn how to play the guitar because... All those girls were screaming, I thought I want them to scream at me too. So anyway, I learned to play the guitar, I played a number of bands, and um, I think that as my career went on through college I, I decided that at first i was I was thinking about being an attorney and uh, so I had a degree in english and history and and I decided, well, you know, I think I might like to teach, so I became a teacher and I loved it and and still do so I have a, a number of, of students, and one of the courses I teach is a contemporary issues course, but it 's actually the history of pop culture for the last fifty years so a lot of the stories I do on Coast to Coast, I have a, a pretty good listening group of 17, 18-year-olds who get into it as well. So it's always been fascinating to me to see that a generation grows up and they actually sort of like their parents' music. Yeah. And I know when I grew up, I had no no desire to listen to my parents' music, but, but that happened. So I became a teacher, and the walrus is Paul. The first book I wrote on Paul is Dead, I remember when it happened. I grew up with it. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, how could this really – could it have really happened? But you got to remember, this was a generation brought up on conspiracy. John Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King in '68, And, uh, you know, it was not a warm and fuzzy feeling for government organizations. And if there was any time something like that could have happened, you know, in 1969, it was very believable. So I remember rejoicing. When I saw the Life Magazine article, it said Paul is still with us, and I thought, oh, my gosh, thank goodness, that's not true. But there were some clues that were actually planted by the Beatles I found out later that I thought was just, you know, fascinating topics. So I was teaching my class in uh, English literature, and I was talking about allegories and symbols, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I did uh, the Paul is dead stuff in class? At that time, I hadn't written the book. So when I did it in class, the kids were fascinated, and I had other teachers call me, oh, can you tell me some of those clues? And I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book. So that became my first book. And the natural follow-up would be, well, if uh, the great myth of Paul is dead, what are some of the other great myths and legends? And then, of course, the one that was always interesting to me, the earliest, was Robert Johnson in the 1930s, making a pact with the devil at the crossroads. So uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side became the third book, which is actually a better, complete edition of uh, Hellhounds on their Trail. Hellhounds was put out by a small press, and when I'd signed my deal with Simon and Schuster, they wanted it, but they wanted me to you know I, I told them I wanted to update it, I wanted to add photographs or more stories, so they they gave me the leeway to do that. I bought the rights back to Hellhounds on their Trail, and what I did to them, I took it off the market, and when I did, it became a nightmare because the price of those books went up to two hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty dollars a copy. Oh, wow yeah, I wish I had a whole basement full of them, you know, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think I've got nine copies. <laughs> but, uh, what happened was that, you know, I, I just yanked it off the market, and uh, I told everybody, I said, "Wait till take a walk in the dark side so that comes out. same thing as Hellhounds, and you can get it for 14 bucks retail, maybe 15 14, 15. yeah And uh, so the book came out and did very well, and uh, you know, of course, I've been doing Coast to coast since 1998. you believe that? Oh wow. first show I did with Coast to Coast was Barbara Simpson and, uh, of course, my good friend Ian Punnett, and my other good friend George Norrie. So, you know, anytime something fascinating happens, I mean, it seems like somehow or another I'm, I'm sort of like an encyclopedia of this, and I don't know if it's a curse, uh, but it just seems like I store a lot of this material. So I guess you can be the life at a party when you hear a song, you can tell them the real story behind it, but, you know, I've just had a great time with it. So uh, I've been writing with Simon and & Schuster, and uh, I have an agent who's really interested in me getting my next book out, which I'll be writing this summer. So it's probably going to be a year or so before it will come out. But uh, I'm doing that. I have a great time. I I love doing radio, and you may have seen me on television. I did a series with VH1 called VH1 Confidential. And that was probably about six, seven episodes for VH1. And then a year and a half ago, NBC and E flew me to New York to do a show called Doomed to Die, 13 Curses. And that's a story about not only rock myths and legends, but also curses on film. So uh, when they called me, they said, well, when we were talking about curses, it said, your name came up in about five seconds, so we needed to have you. So <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's kind of funny that when something strange comes up, it hits it. Now, you asked me a question about, you know, my my outlook on this, because I think a lot of people expect me to write like rock and roll obituaries, which to me, I that, you know, I, I have no desire in doing that. Mm-hmm. I remember growing up and seeing the uh, the penny that had Lincoln on one side and Kennedy on the other, yeah. and I rem- you remember the stories, you know, both men had vice presidents named Johnson. Oh yeah, Lyndon Johnson was born in nineteen oh eight, Andrew Johnson eighteen oh eight. You know, and I thought, wow, that is really bizarre. So. I sort of grew up on the Twilight Zone. I always liked the twisted endings and and uh, so, when I started my research and meeting a lot of people and uh, getting to know a lot of fabulous musicians and you know sort of the thing that attracted me was the strange current of coincidence you know, and uh, so that 's what I like to write on i mean like for instance, when I did the chapter on Buddy Holly. I had no idea how far the Buddy Holly curse stretched from the beginning to to what's still going on. Yeah. And, I mean, it's just fun stuff. And uh, for me, it's just a, maybe a little twisted look at it. But, but I think that if you read the book, uh, you'll have an interesting time doing it. But I think you'll also never quite listen to the songs the same way or the artist and – and you'll be the master at any trivia thing. at any party you go to, you know. When, when I thought the law and the law one comes on, you'll be able to tell them the story of Bobby Fuller. So, it's it's great stuff, and I've had a blast doing it.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I really enjoyed the book quite a bit because it just covers so much different stuff in there that it's like. And and what you're saying about the Buddy Holly curse, for sure, because as I was reading the chapter, it's like, this thing keeps going on.
1: <laughs> this thing, yeah, The gift that keeps on giving. Absolutely. That's it. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's quite strange. Now, one thing I did notice from reading the book, and actually from listening to hearing you on Coast to Coast and stuff, and I'll preface this by saying I am a devoted uh, Bob Dylan fan, mm-hmm. but I didn't notice any 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 of Bob in the book. Have you uncovered much as far as <laughs> myths, legends, and that kind of stuff? uh With regards to Bob, I mean, he's super secretive, of course, and and so it's like I'm sure he probably lends himself to that. And of course, everybody knows about the mystery of the motorcycle accident and what really, you know, we never really will know what happened there, maybe, or maybe someday we will. But I mean, have you looked at uh, Dylan at all and and, and investigated, you know, his mythos?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I love Bob Dylan. And. I know that Bob doesn't like to be called the voice of his generation, but you know, what a voice he was in the sixties and you know, the change that came about from Bob Dylan. Um, I think what you'd have to do, I mean, I, I've not investigated this and, and gone into great detail, but let's just take a look at rock and roll when Bob Dylan was listening to it. First of all, obviously the poster boy for rock and roll was actually James Dean. And that red zip-up rebel without a cause jacket, if you remember in the song, uh, American Pie, there's a line where McLean says, when the jester sang for the king and queen in a, in a Cody bard from James Dean, and the shot of Dylan wearing that zip-up James Dean jacket, he also rode a motorcycle because of James Dean. So the idea that, you know, James Dean was such an influence and, uh, the tragedy of, of James Dean. But when I think of Dylan, I think about how music was in 1959, you know, we're talking about American Pie, where McLean says the day the music died. Well, you know, 1959 was almost the year the music died, because by 1959, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bobber were killed in the plane crash. Chug Berry was in jail, violation of the Mann Act. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis had married his 13-year-old cousin and essentially ended his career in rock and roll. Alan Freed had uh, been destroyed by the Payola scandals. Elvis Presley was in the Army. And little Richard had given it up to become a minister. So in 1959, the very first pulse of rock and roll had stopped. And the Beatles rekindled it in 64. There is a number of great conspiracy theories that, <clears throat> I mean, there are people who believe that Buddy Holly's plane crash wasn't a simple accident. Okay? <laughs> And you know, when you go through this, I mean the mysteries of the gun on the plane and, and Jerry Dwyer, who owned the plane, keeps talking about his pilot being incapacitated and there was a bullet hole through the back of the seat. And, uh, on Coast to Coast one night, I don't know if you remember the show, Tim, but I had Peggy Sue and I had Donna Ludwig, who was Rishi Vallon's girlfriend, who he wrote Odonna for, and the Big Bopper Jr. And we talked on the 50th anniversary of the plane crash. I also had Tommy also blind up, and I came very close to having uh, Jerry Dwyer because we know where the plane is. I mean, <laughs> the plane is in storage, and everyone thought it was destroyed, whatever. No, it's not been. So we're trying to get the ultimate story on that. But there seems to be a lot of interest by the United States government in uh, – you know, of course, with the Bay of Pigs and all this, but there could have been an interest in, well, what was going on in American culture because rock and roll was rebellion. It was against their parents' middle-class values after the generation that saved the world came home. But, you know, when the generation that saved the world came home and uh, they'd made the world free for democracy, they really didn't care who sat on the back of the buses. They really didn't care who couldn't eat in certain restaurants or who had to go to the colored water fountains or the restrooms. It was their children who changed that, and Bob Dylan was the voice who made that change. So sometimes, Tim, I think that Bob Dylan was probably the greatest threat to American society, to those governmental figures – than any missile that was pointed toward us toward Russia from Russia, because Dylan had brought about these changes, his lyrics were powerful, and here's this skinny kid you know with the curly hair who was writing songs that uh, really turned on a generation to make changes so you know you go into the motorcycle accent, a lot of people notice that after the accent, Dylan became very much less political, yeah. And so, you know, that's a, that's a myth or a legend, whatever. And of course, my favorite one is one of my favorite Dylan albums, Highway 61 Revisited. You're familiar with that. Oh yeah. And of course, you know, you know about Highway 61. Oh, the
0: crossroads.
1: The crossroads. Well, Highway 61 that ran up through Mississippi also curved around the housing development where Elvis Presley was born. And through New Orleans and the sound that came out, it was like Bob Dylan was saying Highway 61 Revisited was what brought the music to me, you know, the the folk music scene, the jazz, Elvis, everything else that turned him on, and it came up Highway 61, and I remember there was an interview I think Dylan did, was it 60 Minutes? When they were asking him a couple of questions and he slyly looked in the camera and said, well, it all began on Highway 61, (laughs) like he was going into this crossroads story, you know, and he was smiling. So, you know, I I think that Bob Dylan is is a great enigma. And, uh, you know, f- from whatever that goes into the, the story of the mysterious uh, motorcycle uh, accident, the idea of how he changed the society, and, you know, how he's still out there doing it today. I mean, Dylan is a national treasure. And his songs are so fabulous that, I you know, I can listen to them. I, I can't even name a favorite Dylan song. Oh, yeah. But I know that when I first heard it, it made a major impact on me.
0: Yeah, he's just amazing. And it's just remarkable to think about how long he's lasted especially when so many other artists have passed away you know he's just so enduring
1: and at times he reinvents himself
0: Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, it seems like I remember when "Got to
1: Serve Somebody" yeah. came out. You know, could be the devil, could be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody, and uh, the whole changes with that. And I was lucky enough to know a few people who played with Dylan, or who produced him. So you know, he was he was an interesting figure. I did hear a great story in Nashville, and of course, this has nothing to do with the odd, strange relationships. But when he was recording his album in Nashville, uh he had written some lyrics on some paper. And the guy who worked in the studio took out the trash, and he kept the lyrics. So he's got these handwritten Bob Dill- Dylan lyrics with <laughs> coffee stains. So I figure that's probably a pretty good little uh, piece of memorabilia, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I'll say for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's something really kind of strange, in a way, too, about him. Just in the sense that, like, he's achieved this sort of through—I don't obviously—I think not through his own intention, but he's achieved this sort of godlike status. Or this mythical, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a book out called "Meetings with Bob Dylan," just about people's recollections of actually meeting him. Right? Yeah, you, you can't really get much more mystical than that.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think that's I think that's one thing that he tries to avoid because yeah. he realizes, you know, how pretentious that is. But let's go to the Beatles. When the Beatles first came out and Beatlemania started, when they would go to play in a performance. People would bring cripples, people who were uh, terminally ill, people who were blind, and they would set them close to the stage so that they could actually try to touch the Beatles because they thought, you know, they could be healed. Now, you know, when you're talking about the power of music and pop culture that generated a Dylan and also generated the Beatles and the, the power that people believed they could actually be healed by touching them. And remember, when the Beatles got off the plane and in New York, they had no idea they'd go over. Matter of fact they thought they were doomed to failure. George Harrison said, What do they need us for? Because all their heroes were already here. You know, Chug Berry, Little Richard, Carol King, Jerry Coffin. That's who they wanted to meet, Bob Dylan. And when they got off the plane there were ten thousand screaming girls and when they when they stepped on the grass and the girls were falling down, ripping up dirt and grass where their heroes had stepped on it and the maids were cutting sheets into one inch squares and selling them by the name of the beetle who slept on them at the Waldorf Astoria I mean I don't know if we'll ever have anything that was that powerful with a band that changed that many lives and, and changed our culture. And of course Dylan was a part of it. Of course my funny story with Dylan and the Beatles is that, you know, Dylan had listened to them. I don't know how impressed he was, you know, but he had listened and he had met them. and, and it was the very first time the Beatles had ever tried marijuana because Dylan brought it and he said, Hey, I heard that song. You know, I know you guys do this because I heard the song. I want to hold your hand. You know, that chorus where you say, I get high. I get high. <laughs> And they were saying, "I can't hide, Bob. I can't hide." So, from what I understand, Ringo was the only one who tried it. The rest of them were pretty terrified at the time. But you know, I thought that was pretty funny.
0: <laughs> That's great. Uh, now, one guy who appears throughout the book, and I was—I find him kind of terrifying, to tell you the truth. I actually checked online to see if he was still alive, and he is. So, uh, no disrespect to this guy, uh, Kenneth Anger, and I was just amazed at uh, all the how he kind of weaves himself into these different. Bands, most notably Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin, yeah. and, and I mean, and and not just wheeze himself into these two bands specifically, but then other bands too. But just how th- then tragedy befalls these these bands, especially after they have a falling out with this guy. <laughs> and I mean, that's why I said I was a little scared. I was like, I better make sure this guy's see if he's still alive in case <laughs> I don't want him. Just in on
1: case. Him. Well, I've got a story about that too, because uh, you know when everybody talks about sympathy for the devil by the Rolling Stones and the idea that the occult was brought into rock and roll music. You can go back to late nineteen sixty six when Kenneth Anger, who was a film director or a filmmaker in Hollywood, a cult filmmaker, uh he was a major disciple of Alistair Crowley. He goes over to England because what fascinates him was the power the Rolling Stones had over an audience. And it was almost like to him it was like blending magic and uh, the occult into the power that, you know, could sway so many people. So he befriended the Stones, and he told them stories of Aleister Crowley and got them into it, and, and the Rolling Stones were really into the occult for a while. I know when they did the movie Performance, Mick Jagger and Anita Pallenberg would steal or borrow, I guess I should say, uh, the occult symbols that were laying around in the film and take them home. Uh, Brian Jones was major league into the occult. Uh, Keith Richards and uh, I remember reading an interview in which Keith Richards said, oh, I'm going to play the role of Beelzebub in this movie, you know, Lucifer Rising or Invocation of My Demon Brother, the two films that that Anger was working on. Mick Jagger, he actually performed some music, and his brother actually played the role of Satan in the movie for a while. Marianne Faithful played Lilith in the Invocation of My Demon Brother. And uh, so, you know, the Stones actually got a little afraid of it. Uh, there was a story that... Uh, I think it was Keith Richards woke up with Anita Pallenberg one day, and the door had been painted inside because it was some sort of pagan symbol, but they didn't let anyone in, and that uh, they'd gone to a party, and they had all seen Kenneth Anger at the party, but Kenneth Anger was hundreds of miles away, yeah. and they thought that he had actually projected his his uh, spirit there. So they became kind of afraid. I noticed that Kenneth Anger said that uh, when Mick Janger uh, married Bianca that he had this very prominent cross around his neck, and then, of course, while Anger was in England, now, of course, he knew John Lennon. If you look at the Sergeant Pepper's cover, you can see Aleister Crowley's picture on the top left. So the Crowley legend started to really grow. And when you take a look at probably the other expert, or the greatest expert in Aleister Crowley in England, was Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. Yeah. And, you know, when Boleskine House was purchased by Jimmy Page, it was Crowley's medieval home. Now, you know, Crowley, 19th century, early 20th century, but he had purchased a home that had been built on the spot where a medieval church had been burned to the ground with the entire congregation trapped inside. And when the house was built, maybe 100 years later, there was a man beheaded in the house, and guests have claimed that you can hear the head roll down the stairs at night. And people who had purchased the house, strange things had happened to uh, the wives of the men who owned the house had either committed suicide or wound up in mental institutions. Children died in the house. Uh, some of the men became possessed. One man took out a, a butcher cleaver and cut his hand off while he's making out a list. Another one, uh, trapped his family in a closet and they, they were saved as he was trying to break the door down to get to them. So the house had a terrible, dark history. And when it came up for auction, Jimmy Page purchased it. The person who bid against him was Kenneth Anger. So, But they became friends, and Page let Anger use the basement of Boleskine House to work on his film Lucifer Rising, and Page composed some of the music. And Kenneth Anger was not very happy with the amount of work that Page had done, so supposedly Anger had placed a curse on Led Zeppelin. And then strange things happened. Uh, John Paul Jones broke a finger on his left hand, and they had to cancel a tour. Uh, John Bonham had a number of car accidents. Uh, Robert Plant and his wife were almost killed in a car accident on vacation, and she had to have blood transfusions. And finally, I think it was in 1977, while Zeppelin was in New Orleans, the last thing that happened was that Robert Plant received news that his young son Carrick had died of uh, some form of stomach virus. And, I mean, all these things were odd. So the Anger curse became very, very interesting with Zeppelin. And, uh, of course, Kenneth well Kenneth Anger, I don't think he really went into all that great detail. But Jimmy Page said, well, you know, there's no such thing as the Anger curse. But I will tell you this, from what I researched when we did VH1 Confidential, Page never spent the night at Valeskin House. Huh. Don't blame him. Yeah. But one of his groundkeepers, uh, told the story about staying the night in the house and staying in his bedroom and hearing some sort of animal clawing at the door. And then he heard uh, the house reverberate, and it sounded like the walls were falling in. And he said, and believe me, I was very terrified. Well, I believe him. And uh, the house was eventually sold, so Paige doesn't own the house any longer. So here I am. I go out to L.A. I'm doing VH1 Confidential, and they got me on camera. And the producer said, Gary, tell us uh, the story of Kenneth Anger. Now, I'm out in L.A., Anger's out in L.A., and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to leave this story out. I thought, I really don't want to talk about Kenneth Anger. And they said, oh, come on, tell the story. I mean, it's all in there. It's all documented. So I'm sitting there on camera, and I say, well, you know, Kenneth Anger went. And as soon as I said Kenneth Anger's name, this dog started howling outside. Oh, boy. And I said, okay, that's enough. And when I said that, the director, the producer, and the camera guy agreed with me. Because it freaked them out too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just,
1: so, what would yeah. be the odds of that, Tim?
0: Yeah, and then I'm thinking about the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, story about the howling dog in the book.
1: Yeah, well, that's <laughs> what I was thinking about too, you know, and your listeners may want to know that, but I was in college and I was staying up late one night with my roommate and his girlfriend. We were watching some movies, and all at once his dog started howling. And uh, she turned around and she said, Well,. Someone close to one of us is going to die tonight or has died at that moment. And I looked at her and I said, come on, this is crazy, you know. And she said, no. Ever since I was a little girl and her family on this horse farm and she was talking about, you know, hearing howling dogs, I said, but I hear dogs all the time. She said, yeah, but they bark. They don't howl. And I thought, well, maybe that's odd. So I go to bed. I hear the phone ring early next morning around 7 o'clock, and my roommate Steve gets up to answer the phone. It was his mother telling him that his uncle had died. Very close to the exact time we heard that dog howl. So I got to tell you, Tim, if I hear a howling dog, I sort of have a different perspective on it now.
0: I can imagine, yeah, for sure. I have, I have the same feeling after reading the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the lookout for that. One thing that's kind of come up lately uh, that made me think of you, and I'm glad we have you on the show to ask you about this, is. Um, is this whole sort of meme or concept of like the mind-controlled rock star. Is this like a new thing or is this something that's been around for a while? And I'm, I'm kind of referencing Lady Gaga seems to be the one that everyone's talking about now as you know an Illuminati puppet and that kind of thing. And I think before that, Britney Spears was someone who people attached to that, but especially Lady Gaga, it seems, because she uses a lot of symbolism and stuff like that. But has this been around for a while or is this a new phenomenon?
1: Well, I think that, in the advent of myth and legend it's rather new i mean there have been if you go back to the i guess the late 60s probably more like the late 70s and 80s when you had backward tracks on records yeah okay that's very close to the same thing because you had the symbols and uh the idea was that if you could play a record backwards would it influence the unconscious mind uh, would it make you sell your soul to the devil? Would it make you uh, kill your mother? Or would it make you do anything like that because it would be some form of mind control that would be placed there? And, you know, what was actually funny was in the late 70s, there was actually a discussion that record companies actually placed demons in the album vinyls, which I'm sure would be... Kinda of hard to do, but uh, that was brought up, so the idea of some sort of mind control by listening to to albums would be the first genesis of it. Yeah. And uh, But, you know, it expands. That's what makes urban legends great is that they expand from some point in the beginning and they get up to a Lady Gaga. So you'll probably be hearing more about that, but it's the same basic principle or premise that the idea that, you know, that you have sounds that are in records that can influence you. So And, you know, if you're going to take a look at the subliminals or the signs with Lady Gaga, what you normally do is... I mean, I will tell you, and you know this too. There are backward tracks on records. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt. But a backward track started with the Beatles when they did "Rain," and if you hear John Lennon on the third verse, it sounds like he's saying something like smug, me, like that. <laughs> and I remember listening to "Rain," I thought, "My gosh, what's he saying? This must be Hindu or Krishna or something like that." But actually, he had taken a tape home. Uh, from the studio and reversed the tape by accident, and he thought, this sounds cool. So he goes to George Martin he says, hey, listen, play my vocal backwards on the third verse. So you hear this chant, but when you turn it over, it's just John Lennon saying, when the rain comes, they run and hide their heads. And that's cool. And my favorite one is ELO, you know, off uh, Fire on High, where... When the album starts, you hear this voice. It sounds like a chant. It almost sounds dark, almost satanic. But when you reverse it, you hear Jeff Flynn say, the music is reversible, but time is not. Then he goes, turn back, turn back. And when they asked him what he meant by turn back, he said, well, to hear this, you must be playing your record backwards and you may run your needle. So that's why I said, turn back, stop doing it. You know, that's funny. Yes. Yeah. Other people started hearing what is basically a phonetic reversal. And then we're talking about Stairway to Heaven again, aren't we? When you take, uh, if there's a bustle in a hedgerow, which means that if you want a message to say, here's to my sweet Satan, the one will be the sad one who makes me sad whose power is in Satan. Now, if you play Stairway to Heaven, that verse backwards, that is pretty clear. And when I say pretty clear, there's two ways you do it. First of all, uh, if you let someone listen to it, they may not hear anything but my sweet Satan or sweet Satan or something like that. But if you listen to it carefully, uh, it's pretty spooky because it's very clear that he says, The one will be the sad one who makes me sad, whose power is in Satan. And, you know, I've seen many interpretations of what people hear when they hear it backwards, but. I'm going to say that that's, that's what it sounds like to me. The funny thing is that you would have to take that message, like, here's to my sweet Satan, play it backwards, and then create some sort of phonetic sound that when that is reversed, it would give you the message. So yes. maybe that's what he means if there's a bustle in your hedgerow, right? Because, I mean, that's odd. It's just a spring clean for the May Queen. But Zeppelin swears that there's no backward message. Robert Plant said, the words came to me fast. And I just put them down. But the funny thing is, when Led Zeppelin 4 was recorded, it was recorded at Headley Grange. And Headley Grange was a Victorian workhouse. And a number of people had died there because workhouses in the Victorian ages, where you took the working, able poor, and they had to work for sustenance. I mean, whatever they had to do. And it was a miserable place. Yeah. But that's what it used to be. And when Page walked in, supposedly to the story, he saw an apparition at the top of the stairs. And that's where the Four Symbols album was recorded, of course. Led Zeppelin 4, but also Stairway to Heaven. So maybe there was some sort of dark force that imprinted itself on the album. I mean, I'm not sure, but I really believe that when you take a look at phonetic reversals, Tim, it's like throwing paint on a wall, and you're saying, okay, I threw paint on the wall. Then somebody comes in and says, oh, my gosh, look at this picture, you know, look at this demon. And, you know, you're saying sometimes the problem may be in the person who sees it more than what was actually place there. Exactly. And then, of course, in the words of Alice Cooper, we weren't smart enough to do that, Cooper said. So.
0: <laughs> I actually, uh, yeah, I pulled a quote from you uh, out of the books. I thought it was just uh, amazingly astute, and I'll, I'll read it here for folks to enjoy. It's, uh, And this is in in regards to these backward messages. Perhaps it is only the need to agree to become one of the insiders that allows us to see the hidden shapes that someone points out to us. I thought that was really profound uh, observation because it's like, you know, you want to be in the know so much that you'll say, yes, you see it, in a sense. And that well, can, can apply to this and all the way up to the face on Mars.
1: It can, and it also goes all the way back to Paul is dead. Yeah. Because growing up at that time period, when you're hearing Paul is dead rumors, a lot of people – It was almost like going back to English Lit and being a scop, sitting around a fire in a meat hall telling the story of Beowulf. And the person who had the knowledge or the person that could turn you on with this, that would send those chills up your spine to let you look at something that you've seen a million times but you've not noticed the complexity of it, you know, that was a feeling of power. And I think that, you know, and I I think a lot of things in churches when they started playing Backward tracks, like with Queen, it's fun to smoke marijuana, I decide to smoke marijuana. I think that a lot of that was just the will to say it says something. It, oh, my gosh, there's something there. And I think it it made a very in club that you heard it and you preached it. And then people, you know, the thing is, if I did this with students, you know, and I play a backward track, I'll ask them to write down what it says, and, and none of them will know what it actually is supposed to say. Yeah. But if I read it to them, and I say, now, listen, can't you hear this? Then they all hear, and their eyes light up, like, oh, my gosh, it's really there. Well, is it there, you know? Or is it just the power of suggestion? You know, someone sent me a backward track from Bing Crosby. Now, let me tell you, you may claim a lot of people may be dark and sinister, but Bing Crosby, I don't know. And the song they sent that he was singing was Silver Bells, okay? Yeah. Christmas song. Play it backwards, Agents of Evil. They are listening. They are longing. Now, I haven't tried country music, but still, you know. Is it there or is it Memorex? Who knows? I, I I do think there's a sense of power though. And it's not as big in backward tracks today as it was because when CBS News and Dan Rather said there are dark satanic messages that are placed backwards on rock and roll records and this you know, this was in nineteen eighty, I believe. And then all at once, you know, uh, there was something sinister in rock, of course, many ministers would tell you there was something sinister in rock when Ellis Presley came out, yeah, and rock and roll was banned, but rock and roll 's always been the the choice of rebellion, so you know it 's always had uh its its opponents, but still it 's a fascinating story and and sometimes you know we we have to sort of sit back and and try to determine what is reality and and is something that we want to believe, maybe you know maybe it 's not as we expect it to be.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And uh, sort of along those lines is the Wizard of Oz, Dark Side of the Moon connection. How did that even come about in the first place? How did anyone even discover that? It seems like so random. Who would even think to do that?
1: Well, it fascinated me because it was a couple of disc jockeys very close in Boston. (laughs) It started there. Actually, I even did a radio show with the guys, you know, many years ago. But, you know, first of all, who? would sit down with The Dark Side of the Moon and play it as a soundtrack with, you know, The Wizard of Oz. And who would know when to start the soundtrack on the third roar exactly. of the MGM line? Yeah. I mean, somebody, I mean, I mean I haven't tried this with Spartacus and The Wall yet, but, you know, I mean, who knows? But, you know, uh, there are a number of just fascinating coincidences, you know, like uh, when the bells start to ring, the bicycle bells, and you see the school teacher on her bicycle, and I mean, that's that's sort of different. And, uh, you know, us and them, where the munchkins are dancing in perfect time with the music and uh, on money, you know, the yellow brick road, you know, when uh, the, I mean, I know that when the, the uh, Wizard of Oz was written, that the yellow brick road was the gold standard, and that when Dorothy gets out of the fallen house she really wasn't wearing ruby slippers she was wearing silver slippers because it was the populist thing of adding more to our economy with silver as well as gold and the witches, all these were symbols. So in literature, I knew that. But, you know, to think that Pink Floyd would be playing a game like witch is witch and the idea we're black and blue. And when they say black, it shows the Wicked Witch of the West and blue Dorothy with her blue dress and witch is witch, you know, with the two sisters standing there. Uh You know, it's a great coincidence. But then again, you know, coincidence is... uh An explanation waiting to happen. Sometimes, so you know, it's it's just fascinating. And I know now that you can go online, and there's you know companies or people who sell those sinks, so you can you can buy it, and it has it all put out for you. So, you know, it's just an odd thing. And I thought, wow, this is a great story. I have to put in the book and uh, put the clues in because. I don't see anything wrong with enjoying a great classic movie with a great classic album, but it's just so odd to watch it. It's sort of fascinating. And I think people really believe it happened. I know that Alan Parsons was asked about it. Of course, he was the engineer on Dark Side of the Moon. He said, no, we never did that. Yeah. And Richard Wright, before he passed away, said, no, I've never heard this. But then again, let's go to conspiracy theory. Roger Waters. Did he have the technology? Did he have the know-how? And the answer is yes, because Roger Waters had written a score to Zabriskie Point. So he did know how to do it. But would he have a copy of The Wizard of Oz, because this would come out before videotape machines, and spend the time to sync it up? I mean, it would almost be impossible to do. But it's fun. It's uh, one of those great happenstances that's a great part of urban legend.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's so strange. And and I got to give you kudos cuz in the book like I'd only heard a few of the coincidences, but then I, in, you lay out a ton of them in the book.
1: I mean, there's so you got to have to have fun, Tim. I mean, <laughs> why just have three or four? I mean, you got to go through the tape.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I I was like, "Oh my god, this keeps going like I turn the page and it's like a, <laughs> the, the list continues." I was like, "Wow, this is crazy.
1: <laughs> I didn't realize it was this deep." Well, let me tell you how deep it is. Um I didn't think anything of it after I wrote it up, but I guess it was a year ago at Christmas. I received a very special present. I opened it up, and there were 10 movie sinks that this guy put out, including The Wizard of Oz. That was all in Dolby Digital. I mean, incredible quality. And the guy calls himself the DeVille. The DeVille's workshop. <laughs> and, and, uh, he had sent some to one of the editors of Rolling Stone and he sent some to me. And I mean, it was probably the nicest Christmas present I've received in a long time watching these sinks and movies, you know? And he'd spent, I mean, he's had to spend hours putting sinks together with, uh, different movies. And, and I was just really amazed with it. So, I mean, he had Lord of the Rings and Led Zeppelin 4. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it was Lord of the Rings, the first one, and Led Zeppelin Four and all these strange things happening that he has detailed. So let's just say there's a cottage industry in uh, movie and rock sinks.
0: It sounds that way. Yeah, I'm going to have to look wow. even further into this one. Um, <laughs> this kind of goes back a little bit to the Lady Gaga thing and just the whole idea of the occult symbolism. It seems like in some cases, some of the artists just co opt this symbolism. To add an allure to their image, I guess you could say, and then uh, and then people read into it and sort of tag them to it. Do you think that went on a lot with the artists, you know, who were profiled in the book? Because, you know, I find it hard to believe that they were all into Satan and everything. But it seems like maybe that was just, co- you know, sort of like the thing to do in a, in a way, you know, to add a, a, an allure of danger or something to the music.
1: Well, Tim, I agree with you. You know, I remember also growing up. You remember the Hammer horror films that came out? Oh yeah. You know, I used to love Christopher Lee doing Dracula. Okay, I remember those. But if I ever met Christopher Lee, I'm sure he didn't have fangs. You know, Mm -hmm. and but he put the cape on. He he performed, and I think a lot of rock artists. What they would do, they would put on a performance and they put any type of symbolism to sort of add to the mistake. And when I think of that, the first name comes to mind is Ozzy Osbourne.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking
1: of too when I was writing that down, yeah. And when Ozzy came out with, uh, well, Blizzard of Oz was first, and when he did Diary of a Madman, you know, in Knoxville, Tennessee, I saw the last performance of Randy Rhodes with Ozzy before he was killed in the plane crash. So, I mean, I saw that last show. But I also got to know Brad Gillis a little bit and about the same time and Brad took uh, well he was the second guitarist who took the place of Randy Rhodes on the tour and I was asking him I said you know what are those the cult symbols and, and obviously I mean how deep is this you know into the the dark side of course you know you have to go back and explore Black Sabbath and a lot of people Black Sabbath which is Sabbath but you know it was actually named after a you know a, a Boris Karloff movie called Black Sabbath and one of the guys in the band said, hey, look, the closest we ever got to black magic was chocolate. Because apparently in England, they have black magic chocolate. You know, that was the thing. But Geezer Butler, the bass player, also mentions that Ozzy had bought him a book of witchcraft for the 17th century. And strange things happened in his house till the book was destroyed. So you had that mystique. But Brad said that when they did uh, Diary of a Madman, that Ozzy goes out and he says, I want all these occult symbols put on the album because it looks cool. Not that it meant anything, because it looked cool. But he couldn't understand it when he came out to play uh, in halls, especially in the south, that churches would be out protesting. Them. And he says, I don't understand. He said, I always say every, every night I end with, God bless you, God bless you at the end, you know. And so, I mean, here's a person who, you know, just used it as, as kind of a symbol and, and the robes and the gothic sets and all this were set up just basically as, uh, you know, just like going to a movie. And the guys are different. But, you know, when you meet musicians like that, the first thing is they're so commonly normal. Yeah. You know, they talk about their kids and wonder if they're going to pass math in school. And, you know, they don't really have time to worship the devil. Plus, if they did, you know, they'd make a lot more money, apparently, you know, or they'd sell out a lot more uh, stadiums and their records would do well. So I think it's a mystique that a lot of bands bought into, especially Marilyn Manson. Yeah. You know? With the uh, you know the, the contact lens with the cataract, which sort of reminds me of a guy named Robert Johnson, and uh, the idea that let's create a buzz so people will come out and see what we're doing and uh, spend money for records, spend money for performances, and we'll make a great deal of money and then after a while, it sort of all dies down again. So I think you're right. I mean, the Lady Gaga thing with the cult symbols, and uh, people are going to be buying CDs to try to determine what it really means. And, you know, it's pretty good business practice, but uh, I don't think there's not any children's sacrifices going on right now. Right? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. <laughs> we better make that clear. <laughs> and, like, yeah, like the point you make, too, in the book is, like, of if, if all these alleged, uh, you know, Satan – worshiping groups had really sold their soul to the devil, then, you know, we'd be inundated with that style of music, but really it's kind of more of a niche
1: arena now, so... Well, yeah, it is. And I mean, if you're going to sell out a major hall, it seems like, you know, the devil would make a better deal for you, you know, uh, and to sell it out and not have to sp- play small clubs and small, you know, venues because you're not going to make enough money to make it there.
0: Now, I like that warning that you had in the book, too, about, about when, for people who might want to... Ex- try and listen to stuff backwards was like do not do this on your record player you're (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You'll burn out the motor and ruin the Yeah. Handle. I can only imagine that must have been happening, like, all the time.
1: Uh, oh, it was. You know, you had to put your turntable in neutral. Of course, you know, the term turntable is probably archaic now. You know, you're talking about your MP3 players. But, you know, it's much more fun with an album because you could just put the turntable in neutral and spin it with your finger, you know. And you'd sit in a darkened room, and it was, it was really an experience to do it. When it first came out, oh, my gosh, it actually says, Paul is dead now i miss him, miss him, miss him. So, I mean, I remember doing that, and, uh, you know, it was a blast. And what I hoped to do with my book was to uh, turn on a whole new generation to it. Maybe not have to do as much work as I did, but to enjoy it. And, you know, the best thing is to, you know, to be creative and to, to ask questions and, uh, you know, to, to take it to another level and have some fun with it because that's what the purpose of legends are. And uh, the idea of a myth is actually the truth. And a lot of those things you can find, but w- when I did find out something like that, I I sort of leave it up to the reader. I, I really don't like to condemn it because I remember a lot of these myths, you know, were so much fun to learn Yeah. that it would be rather cold just to say, nah, never happened, but bring <laughs> it up and tell you the story and let you do it. You know, you can read between the lines and find it, but, you know, it's such fascinating stuff.
0: I was surprised right. by the observation you make in the book, too, that uh, that the Paul is dead theory or conspiracy was like an American phenomenon and, and, and was kind of laughed at by the, the people in the UK. I was surprised that it didn't, yeah, I guess, make the leap over to to the United Kingdom, obviously where, where the Beatles are from.
1: Well, you know, that's interesting. Uh, I know Bill Harry very well. If you remember the last show I did on Coast to Coast, we did uh, the Lennon Prophecy, and I got Bill on the show. And Bill was you know John Lennon's best friend, and he worked with the Beatles. He was the creator of Mercy Beat, and uh, he has my book, The Walrus's Paul and I really enjoyed it, but, you know, when I talked to him, it's like, we didn't know any of this, or we didn't know the detail of it. Yeah. And, you know, so, and then I was on with uh, James Whale, and uh, if you know James in England, you know, he, he's sort of a interesting character, and he was saying, well, Gary, the Beatles were never as popular in England as the Rolling Stones, and I thought, well, that's odd. But a lot of people in England, there were rumors, but not to the extent as it was over here. Of course, over here we had American DJs driving the whole thing. Yeah. You know, and you had the BBC over there, and, you know, they sort of looked at it, oh, that's silly, we're not going to talk about it. So over here people were making things fit. when you do Paul is Dead, you have a set of, of, uh, I divide the clues up into groups. Like the first is the totally ridiculous, because once you find out, that there was a rumor McCartney had been killed in a car crash in '66. people start looking for clues that go maybe back to 1964 when it could have happened. Oh, look, on the Help album, Paul doesn't have a hat. You know, he's different (laughs) from the others. That means he's dead. And the album called Help, you know, what does it, you know, so I'm sitting here listening to that, you know, and I'm saying, okay, those are pretty phony. And then the second one I call Guided Looking and Guided Listening. And that's where you look at the Sergeant Pepper cover. Do you really see those yellow, those yellow hyacinth flowers? Do they really spell out Paul with a question mark? Well, let me show you. And then after I show you, you'll see it. Oh my gosh, it does say, you know, which goes back to her backward tracks. But the third one, those are those are the ones that are the most interesting to me, and made me actually write the book because they can't be explained away. And uh, you know, the beals had to obviously plant one or two. So let's talk conspiracy. In 1967 when the Beatles came out with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, it was a huge risk. Yeah. Because the music changed, the Beatles changed. You know, they even sort of make a point of it when you look at the cover and you see the Beatles' wax figures all dressed alike in brown, and then you see the Beatles in the center, and all of them are in different colors of those band uniforms that are in psychedelic, uh, vibrant colors, which, you know, serves more individuality. But when that album came out, just think, Tim, what if it flopped? Yeah. What if people said, oh, I don't, I don't like this orchestral sound with the Beatles. I want, I want to hold your hand, or I want She Loves You. I mean, why are they doing fixing a hole, you know? What is what is it with this? So let's just say that the Beatles realized that if the album were to fail, which I'm sure they, they probably one chance in a hundred, that they would have a backup plan that what if something had happened to Paul McCartney? People would have to buy the albums to find the clues. Huh? Interesting. And let's take a look at this. When Abbey Road came out in 69, okay, those clues hadn't been found. And on the White album before Abbey Road, which was done in 68, you hear John Lennon and Glass Onion say, here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. And if he says, here's another clue for you all, that implies there were others before. Exactly, yeah. Now, why did the Beatles shut up in 69? Okay, when Abbey Road came out, it wasn't selling very well. But when the rumors came out that Paul was dead, not only did Abbey Road jump up, as a best-selling album on Billboard, but every Beatle album jumped back up on Billboard for people buying them looking for clues. The Beatles made a fortune on the money when Apple was going down. So it was a very appropriate time for them to... Uh, to make a fortune on it. But they never said anything. They denied it. But they didn't deny it for weeks. And when Live Magazine came out with the article, it had been two to three weeks. And then Paul is Still With Us comes out. But the story goes that when McCartney heard that a DJ in the United States, Russ Gibb, was saying he was dead, McCartney replied, It sounds like good publicity to me. Tell them I'm not. Well, it was great publicity, but no one told him he wasn't. Nobody could get in touch with him. And uh, it became a phenomena. Now, I tell you, there's a lot of people who say that all of this was just, you know, hysteria. And I believe that you could probably say 97%, 98% of all the clues probably could be interpreted that way. But there's one that defies that category, and that has to do with the Sergeant Pepper's cover with the bass drum that says, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah. When you look at the cover, Peter Blake was the artist who designed the entire cover, but he did not design the bass drum. The bass drum was said to be designed by an Australian painter whose name was Joe Epgrave, E P T H G R A V E. Now, Ep and Grave, to me, sounds like an epitaph, on a grave. Yeah. If you, if you look at the cover, the rumor was that the word Beatles was a freshly dug grave, and the Beatles were standing there, and there was a group of onlookers who would be mourners, and they would be like the yin yang of, of everything. You had people who were tragic and people who were comedians. You had Aleister Crowley, and you had, uh, you know, Maraishas, and all this, all through the cover. Good, evil. Everything was opposite male, female. All of these energies were on the cover. And, you know, you look at the freshly dug grave and you look at the base room, and the base room would have to be the tombstone, okay, because the tombstone has an epitaph. And an epitaph tells you who died and the date of death. Now, if you look in the crowd, I think on the second, third row on the left, you'll see a black and white figure of Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll, John Lennon loved his wordplay, as he did James Joyce, and If you remember Lewis Carroll's Adventures in Wonderland or Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass, that was a clue to use a mirror. So you take a flat edge mirror and you place it in the center of Lonely Hearts. Now, I'll tell you this about the drum skin. There were two drum skins designed for that cover. They're different, except for the phrase Lonely Hearts. The font layout, exactly the same. Mm -hmm. You take the straight edge mirror, you place it in the center of Lonely Hearts, read the reflection from the glass to the album cover, and it spells out a hidden message. It spells out numeral one, which would be a capital I, and then O-N-E, which spells one again, and then numeral I-X, which is nine, and then you have a diamond-shaped arrow that points straight up to Paul McCartney and down to the grave, and then it says, he die. Huh. Wow. And between he and die is a diamond-shaped arrow. Now, what this means, at first, when I did this, I thought, oh, my God, this is the smoking gun. This is it. Yeah. And so I was trying to write it down. One, At first I thought, one of the Beatles, the one with nine letters, he died. And that made sense. But McCartney was the only beetle with nine letters, so that made sense. So then I thought, well, no, because to be a true epitaph, you have to have the date of his death. Yeah. So when I wrote it down, the two ones are placed together. That forms 11, then 9, the IX, and that would be November the 9th. Now, in two other Beatle references, they mention a car accident Paul McCartney had on November the 9th, 1966, (laughs) at 5 a.m. When you turn the Sgt. Pepper cover over to the back, the Beatles are are standing there. McCartney has his back to the, to the camera, and Life magazine said that was the rumor because he was an imposter, or you could see the scars from plastic surgery, which is funny. But he had his back to the camera. George Harrison is standing next to him very stoically, and he's pointing with his thumb. So when the Beatles picture was placed on the album cover, the lyrics for the first time in rock history were printed on the back of the album. And the line that George Harrison points to with his thumb is the first line to the song, She's Leaving Home, which says, Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock. <laughs> wow. On the backside, the day and the hour. On the bass drum, the date.
0: <sighs> that's amazing. See, my mind is blown right now. I have never- <laughs>
1: <laughs> So, you know, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And, you know, so I mean, what that tells us is that in rock history, when Sgt. Peppers came out, it had to be Lonely Hearts to give the clue.
0: Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. I, I just, I'm just stunned by that.
1: <laughs> so, you know, when I'm doing a show and they're talking about, well, all these are coincidence, all these, and they'll say, well, give me one. I know one DJ said, okay, give me a clue and I'll tell you what it really was. And I said, well, tell me about the bass drum. He says, what? I said, tell me about the bass drum clue. What's the bass drum clue? And after I said it, he was a believer after he saw it. Because what that does, I mean, in 67, it shows the Beatles had actually planted that. Yeah. Now, after that, there were a number of clues that you could look at any way you wanted to. But that was brilliant. And someone who designed that really needs to have his name placed in an incredible small group of people who did something so ingenious and probably buried since 67. But my research tells me it was Mal Evans who came up with the idea of Lonely Hearts. And Mal was one of the road managers for the Beatles. And, of course, Mal's no longer with us because, uh, unfortunately, he was in California and he had had a uh, domestic disturbance. The police came, and at the wrong time, Mal decided to bring out a toy gun, and the police killed him. Oh, boy. And he was cremated, and they sent his ashes back to England. And the sad story is that The ashes never got there, and no one has ever found the ashes of Mal Evans. And John Lennon's line was, it's just like Mal to wind up in the dead letter office. (laughs) So, I mean, what a great story. So, I mean, this is what fascinates me, as it does you, Tim, because, I mean, I love great stories, and I love listeners who call and, and turn me on to something you know, to let me get involved and, and do some of the great research behind it. But, you know, the, the thing with that, that's what made me do the book, and that's why it gave me a whole different perspective on Paul is Dead, you know, not just a, a group of hysteri- hysterical fans, you know, who saw too much and not enough and listened to things that weren't there, but something that really defies, you know, logic. And, and the thing is, there's a lot of rewriting of Beatle history. I remember reading the Life magazine article, and McCartney was talking about the Black Walrus being John, and and the you know when you look at the inside uh, sleeve of the album, you see McCartney wearing the OPD badge that's supposed to mean officially pronounced dead, but it's really OPP, not OPD. Yeah. And I often wondered why McCartney said, well, perhaps it stood for the Ontario Police Department. because he was trying to reinforce OPD. Instead, it stands for the Ontario Provincial Police. And then in 1980, I've got an interview with McCartney saying, oh, well, I just picked up this black walrus head and put it on. I didn't mean anything. They said, so you were the walrus? Yes, I've always been the walrus, which is completely different from what he said in 1969. Yeah. And then when the anthology came out, I have a friend, Jay Fox, from ABC Radio, who, uh, of course, ABC did the anthology, and he got to interview McCartney, and he asked him an interesting question. Well, as soon as he did the interview, he calls me. Gary, you got to hear this. And on the tape, they were talking about the Free as a Bird video. Are you familiar with this?
0: Uh, vaguely, yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. If you want to have some fun, and you're a Beatle fan, and you haven't heard this, you'll have a blast. Take the Beatle video, Free as a Bird, put it in your video player, DVD player, watch it, and you'll find over 90 hidden Beatle references. Oh, wow. You know, you'll see the rain come down, you'll see uh, the, the standing in line to the cavern. Uh, at the end of the video, you see Paul McCartney from The Fools of Hill, and you'll see this long and winding road. I mean, it's incredible. So the director put over 90 references. And you'll see Penny Lane, you'll see the barber with the pictures in the window of every head he had the pleasure to know. And it is fascinating. So Jay asked him about it and he said, Are there hidden things in the in the video for He's a bird? And McCartney says this it all became a bit of a game in the old Beatle days to put hidden things in. <laughs> it was the first time that Paul McCartney ever said that the Beatles ever put any hidden things in. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. And then, of course, one of the funny ones is that on The Simpsons, uh, Paul McCartney and Linda are guests, and Lisa wants to become a vegetarian, so who better to teach Lisa than Paul and Linda? And McCartney tells her in The in the, the Simpsons episode, he says, you know, if you play Maybe I'm Amazed backwards, you'll hear a ripping recipe for lentil soup.
0: Yeah, I remember that, yeah. You remember that?
1: <laughs> yeah. And when the show ended, you hear this voice, they're playing maybe Amaze, but you'll hear, and it's a backward track, and you play it backwards, you hear McCartney say, take one cup of pepper, add one clove, and he goes through the whole recipe for lentil soup, and then he says, oh, by the way, I'm alive. <laughs> so, you know, maybe somebody's still having fun with it. But, you know, here's the other thing. It's a selfish thing, Tim. Uh, if I knew the answer, if I taught McCartney, I wouldn't want him to tell me. Yeah that they really faked it. I think it takes the magic out. And I think that what's what's interesting for me is to see a whole new generation of kids discover the, the beauty and the, the magic of the Beatles and also the legend that goes with it because it's a fascinating story. And long may it endure because if I could even find out, the only thing I want Paul to tell me is what I missed <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. What clues did you miss? Now let me tell you what I did for fun. If you look at the Simon and Schuster version of The Walrus's Paul, I told Simon and Schuster when they put the book out, I said I want clues on the cover. <laughs> I do, and I said here's some of my clues. Now you know if you want to do clues, that's fine. So Simon and Schuster they put some clues on it, but they wimp out because you turn them back, they tell you what their clues are. I don't tell my clues. Oh man! And here's the fun part, Tim. Nobody has ever told me what they were. Interesting. So if you want, you know, people say, "Oh, I missed all these clues. I wish we. I wish I could find some clues." So I said, "Okay, they're on my cover of my book. Find them. <laughs> tell me what it means." And uh, you know, so it's always a challenge to have somebody tell me what those clues are. Maybe you or one of your listeners can do that for me. So oh, yeah, That'd be I great. This out for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man.
0: I do not, for one, think that the problem was that the band was down. I think that the problem may have been that there was a Stonehenge monument on the
1: stage that was in danger of being crushed by a dwarf, all right? That tended to understate the hugeness of the object. You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
0: Look, see? Still got the uh, the old tagger on it, so he never even played it. See? You just bought it? Don't touch it. Don't touch it. I, well, touch it. I, I wasn't oh, going to no touch one, it. No, don't
2: touch it. I was just it. pointing at it. I, well, don't point, even. Don't you even point? Be, no. It can't be played. Never. I mean, Can I can, look um, at no. it? No. No, you've seen don't enough
0: look of it. that one. To go down a whole different road, I guess you could say, one of the other parts of the book that I found interesting was just um, how many dead rock stars seem to then get tied in with sort of like uh, murder conspiracies, and uh, most specifically, I guess, Brian Jones. It seems like he's the one that ha- – that one had the most weight to it, I guess you could say, although I've read the the Kurt Cobain book, the conspiracy book, uh, and that Ian one – Ian Halpert's book. Yeah, yeah, and that one sort of had me thinking a little bit too, but, but from what I read in uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, it was like I kind of became a believer after reading your book that maybe maybe <laughs> Brian Jones was murdered. Um, what's your take on that whole thing?
1: Well, I'm going to tell you, Brian Jones was murdered. There's no doubt. Wow. All right. <laughs> that, that goes on record, doesn't it? <laughs> absolutely. See, yeah. A lot of people on coast to coast. What's really funny is uh, you know I'll do a show with George and we'll talk about Elvis being alive. Okay. And, you know, when I say Elvis left the building, I mean, I honestly believe Elvis died at that time in 77 because I knew Carl Perkins real well. Yeah. And I asked Carl, I said, Carl, is Elvis dead or – and he said, Gary, I went to the funeral. Elvis is dead. And, you know, there were a lot of things that happened, but everything that came up sort of follows the guideline of urban myth. I mean, you can predict what's going to happen. Somebody's going to see the person five days after he died on a plane leaving (laughs) leaving Memphis. So all that happens. It happened with Michael Jackson. You know, Ian called me up and said, Carrie, everything you predicted happened. So we went through that. But, I mean, that's exactly what it was. I mean, you have that. So here's the thing with Brian Jones, all right? Here's what doesn't make sense. How could Brian Jones' body... When uh, there was a party, there were only four people there, supposedly, to the police report. How could his body be at the bottom of a pool in a matter of minutes? I mean, water would have to fill his lungs completely. Now, you know, we can talk about, yeah, well, this is this, but let me tell you something. There were two witnesses to this, actually, three, and they left the country because when two men appeared, they saw. One man in the pool holding a blonde-haired man's head under the water. Another man jumped off the poolside and landed on his back. So there were at least two, maybe three men involved in drowning Brian Jones. And here's where the story gets even more complex because Jones, you know, he had death by misadventure which means that he could have committed suicide, that he had asthma, whatever, you know. But the bottom line was, to be considered by the medical examiner in England to have died from suicide, they couldn't bury him in the churchyard with his family, so they had to bury him in a public cemetery. Yeah. Which to me is sad. And uh, Brian Jones was extremely happy. He had told his friends that both John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix wanted to start a band with him after the Stones. When he died, a number of his precious guitars and a check that the Stones had sent him, I think for a 100,000 pounds, all that disappeared. And the story now goes, there was a rumor that Frank Thorogood, who was one of the workers, that had taunted Jones, and Jones was going to fire him. So if he fired him, they lost a the gravy train, yeah. that Frank Thorogood was one of the men who murdered him. And that there was a deathbed confession where Frank Thurgood says, it was me that did Brian. Well, Thurgood's friend, who he also had uh, some dealings with, was one of the people involved in the Stones' management. And now they're saying that he was one of the people who helped murder Brian Jones. But, you know, uh, the two men who went to the party, a man appeared from the bushes, shook his fist at him and said, if you tell, you'll be next. So the question is in Great Britain, are they going to do a thorough investigation and find out who these other men were, or are they going to say, well, Brian Jones died in 1969, Frank Thorogood's dead, everybody's dead, there's nothing to it, so let's just let it rest. If that's the case, I think it's a disservice to Brian Jones.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, I, I don't think there's a statute of limitations on murder. Also, Brian Jones' girlfriend also left the country. Because there were things that she felt just weren't right. Yeah. And, you know, there there were more people there than was in the police report.
0: You want to hear another murder story? Absolutely. Jimi Hendrix. Okay, yeah, because I heard that guy on Coast to Coast a few, uh, back in September. With Ian? Yeah, back mm-hmm. in September. Actually, I was looking at the, I actually listened to the, the clip of him on Coast to Coast maybe half hour before I called you so I could be refreshing. Oh, great. So, okay, yeah, so you're ready.
1: At, yeah, I'm ready. What's, uh, what, what's your take well, on that? Well, here's the thing I never that? understood. Okay. Do you know, and maybe this guy brought it up, no one had ever interviewed the ambulance drivers or the doctor at the hospital?
0: I didn't know that, no.
1: Because here's a strange thing, all right? Monica Daneman tells a story about taking Jimmy to a party the night before he died. Yeah. And it was to a former girlfriend, Devon Wilson's, and that she had dropped him off and she didn't go in with him. And then she comes back to get him, and she takes him back to their flat, and she fixes him a tuna fish sandwich, and he drinks a couple glasses of wine. He takes non-sleeping pills. He goes to sleep, and he's asphyxiated. When she wakes up that morning, she instead of calling the ambulance, she rushes out of the apartment, and she calls Eric Burton. Ten minutes go by, maybe more. And the story goes that she was afraid there were drugs in the apartment and she'd be arrested. But she waited 10 minutes to call an ambulance. So the ambulance comes and she says they put him in a sitting position and that's when he was asphyxiated. But the ambulance drivers told her that he was fine. They took him to the hospital. They sure he was okay. She was waiting. She goes back and he's dead. You know? Yeah. And she doesn't understand what happened. Well, what's happened recently, and this is, you know, in the last couple of years. Jimmy Hendrix had another girlfriend whose name was Kathy Edgingham, and he had written a song to Win a Mary for her. And she and Mitch Mitchell's wife did the interviews, and they found out that Hendrix was DOA when they picked him up at the apartment. Now, here's the part I don't get, and this gives credence to uh, the roadie who tells the story. He's got a book out on it. Yeah. I wish I'd heard Ian's show that night. And, uh, but anyway, this is, this is what always amazed me. The coroner said that when Hendrix's body was brought to brought to the hospital, that wine was oozing from his mouth. Yeah. Okay. Now, in the new book, uh, Mike Jeffries, who was Hendrix's manager, allegedly, had hired two to three men to kill Hendrix, and what they did. They took bottles of wine and poured it down his his throat, and he drowned on it.
0: Yeah, that's what the guy was saying on Coast to Coast, yeah.
1: All right, here's something else. When they did the, uh, well, I guess the, the forensic study, his blood alcohol level and his bloodstream was almost nothing.
0: Exactly, yeah. So how would it, yeah. So (laughs) yeah, you can't yeah you can't really drink you can't consciously do that to yourself.
1: uh, No, no, not at all. But here's here's what even gets more interesting. Devon Wilson, who was at the party that night after Hendrix's funeral, she's back in New York and she does a swan dive off the Chelsea Hotel. Dead. Mike Jeffrey, the manager, who was going to lose Hendrix. There's a story that Hendrix was kidnapped maybe two weeks before his death.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that Jeffrey had had him freed, but the story goes that Jeffrey had borrowed hundreds of thousands of dollars from organized crime to build electrically land studios, and if he was to lose Hendrix, then he was on the hook for the money. Yeah. And you know, if you have a dead rock star, you make a lot of money from royalties and life insurance policies. Mm-hmm. That's why Jeffries was furious with Eric Burden because Burden had come on and claimed that Hendricks had committed suicide. Oh, and that would affect the insurance, right? It would. He would have lost it on. It was a million-dollar, I think it was at least a million-dollar insurance policy. So they had to keep Eric Burden quiet and, you know, say, no, no, you know, that it was accidental death. So that comes out. Now what happens is that Jeffrey was, you know, brought up for an investigation, and he's killed in a plane crash.
2: Okay? Isn't
1: that odd? And Noel Redding had always claimed... That there was something sinister in Hendrix's death. Of course, Noel's dead now, died in his bathtub. And Monica Daineman, the one who had sold herself to uh, Al Hendrix, Hendrix's father, as Jimmy's fiancee, that no one else knew about it, especially Kathy Edgison. But uh, Kathy Edgison somehow brought out a libel suit against her, or a slander suit, and they had stopped uh, Monica from telling one of her stories. And Monica Daineman takes a Mercedes, pulls it outside. on the road, and takes a hose and puts it to her muffler, runs it into the car, and asphyxiates herself, carbon monoxide poisoning. (laughs) So the people who were the closest to the Hendrix death, they're all dead. Strange.
0: What about the the Kurt Cobain one? Have you looked at that one? Because that's a little fresher. I I think that, uh, you know, it's even more mysterious in the sense that we're living in such a 24-hour news cycle that I'm surprised it never really had the legs that You'd think it would, you know what I mean? Well,
1: did do you know Ian Halpern?
0: I've read the book. Okay, I'm familiar with that. I'm familiar with some of his other stuff.
1: Well, Ian and I did a show together, uh, Ian Halpern, and you know he was talking about the Kurt Cobain conspiracy, and he had told me two years ago. He said, Gary, there will be a reopening of his death. Hadn't happened. Yeah. He makes a number of, uh, of pretty good statements that, you know, uh, I guess what I could say, they may be rather political-based. That he, you know, there's been a lot of pressure for him, for people not to follow up on it. But, you know, here's basically the idea. You know, when when Kurt Cobain commits suicide, he gets a shotgun, he loads it. You know I mean? If you're going to shoot yourself with a shotgun, you really probably don't need to put three shells in it. Yeah. And, you know, he takes the shotgun. He gives himself an overdose of heroin that will kill him within seconds. Yet after he takes the heroin, he shoots himself in the face with a shotgun. But what's odd is there's no fingerprints on the shotgun. You know, dead men can't wipe their fingerprints off.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Now, they could be distorted when the shotgun moves. I mean, I'm not saying any way. I'm just bringing up some of the points that Ian makes Mm and some of the other stories with it. I've also heard that Kurt Cobain had a credit card that was taken. Well, the credit card was used on the day he died until they found his body, so he'd been dead for a couple of days. But once Cobain's death was announced, the credit card was no longer used. Exactly, yeah. So There's a story that one person gives who claims that he was offered money to kill Kurt Cobain. And then the guy falls under a train.
0: Yeah, 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 I remember that whole part of it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And then Kristen Pfaff from Hull, you know, uh, she felt terrible about uh, Kurt Cobain's death. She goes to Seattle to uh, get her equipment with her boyfriend, and uh, she stays in while her boyfriend goes out. She takes a bath. She had been on heroin, but she'd been clean. She'd gone to rehab, and her boyfriend finds her dead of a heroin overdose the next morning. So there's a number of strange deaths in Seattle and a storyline that goes with it. So, you know, I think the thing with Cobain is that the medical examiner says that he has actually had people who survived much larger heroin overdoses. And, you know, so until they get something a little bit more concrete and someone who they can, can blame it on. And, I mean, Ian makes a pretty good case for a number of things. I mean, basically, what's wrong with opening up? We live in a country, we dug up Zachary Taylor, yeah. All right. Exactly. Yeah. Who died in 1850 to find out if he had been poisoned by arsenic by Henry Clay, another, fa- another great American. And so they actually, you know, many years later from 1850, when was this in the 1990s, I believe, you know, they dig up Zachary Taylor, they take a sample of his hair and they find traces of arsenic, but they said that not enough to have killed him and it was probably present in the medicine they used at the time. So it cleared Henry Clay's name. But, you know, when I think of Zachary Taylor, how long will it be before somebody gets on the Kurt Cobain kick and they go in a little bit more? Because, I mean, right now, it's something we're fascinated with. Listen, you remember the show I did with the Big Bopper Jr.? Mm-hmm. When he had his father's body gone through the autopsy to find out if his father was killed instantly in the plane? Because the Bopper's body was found 40 feet in front of the plane. And his son was terrified that his father had survived the initial impact and was crawling for help, and he died in intense pain. Yeah. So he hires Dr. Bass from the body farm in Knoxville, Tennessee, pretty close to me, and they do an autopsy, and they find out that the Big Bopper died immediately. Well, this is from 1959, and I guess one of the strangest stories was that Jay, the uh, Big Bopper Jr., had uh, opened his father's coffin and wanted to see him because he was born three months after his father died. Yeah, You know, to me... I don't think I could do that, but, you know, I know that's some form of closure or whatever with it. And then the strange thing was, Jay asked me, he says, hey, Gary, uh, what do you think we could do with the coffin? I said, the coffin? Yeah. He goes, yeah. He said, you know, maybe I can donate it to, a, you know, some sort of museum. E. So my friend Peggy Sue Garin, knew but he hollies Peggy Sue calls and says he saw it on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, man. They had removed all the... Uh, the, you know the the cloth, and it was just the physical metal thing. You know the, the the box, and I don't know what's happened to it. I think maybe it is in some uh, museum. You know, some mortuary museum somewhere. But you know that's just that's just the story. I mean, you got Cobain, you've got this. I mean, rock and roll. We've had a number of mysterious deaths, and when Bobby Fuller, who did "I Fought the Law and the Law Won," one of the Buddy Holly curse guys. When he bars his mother's car to go out at one o'clock in the morning and he told her he'd be back and he didn't come back and that later that night she hears the car pull in and the car cut off but 15, 20 minutes go by, there's no Bobby. She goes down to the car. Her son is laying stretched out in the front of the car. He'd been badly beaten and bruised, his chest, his face. I think his left index finger was broken. He was doused in gasoline and there was gasoline down his throat. Yeah. And the Hollywood police said that it was suicide. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I remember reading that in the book. The only problem is you can't drink gasoline while you're alive because you naturally regurgitate it. Mm -hmm. So here's here's your thing. What happened to Bobby Fuller? The story goes that Bobby Fuller had a girlfriend who also was dating a mob boss in Texas and that Bobby Fuller was killed by organized crime. And the Fuller family had hired a detective to try to find the story. The detective quit after he came in early and found his office being burglarized. He was shot at. He quit. Uh, Bobby's brother Randy was was chased off a road. So they moved back. So, I mean, there's something there. And, uh, you know, there's there's some of these stories that it's like, I I guess I call them rock and roll cold cases, you know?
0: Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's a good name. You should, uh,
1: that should be your next TV show. Hey, I think it would be great. I'd love to do it, and uh, it, it would be fun because, you know, everybody's interested in cold cases, but rock stars, I mean, the whole thing. And listen to this story. You know, Delphi Records in California had three fabulous artists. One was uh, Richie Valens. The second one, Sam Cooke. And the third one, Bobby Fuller. What do they all have in common? Dead. Bobby Fuller was uh, murdered. Uh, well, suicide or murder. And then Sam Cooke was shot to death in a motel in, L- in L.A., and Reggie was killed in a plane crash. The FBI actually investigated Bill Keane, the guy who owned Delphi, because there were rumors that he had million dollar life insurance policies on his artist. So that goes back into the idea of Hendrix's death. You know, uh, sometimes rock stars make more money dead than they do alive.
0: Yeah, look at Michael Jackson.
1: Yeah, he just signed a great album. I mean, great deal with Sony, didn't he? Yeah,
0: yeah, like the great biggest deal ever for a (laughs) musical. Yeah, and all he had
1: to do was die to do that. And look at Graceland. Look how much more money Graceland's made now that Elvis is dead.
0: Now, speaking of cold cases and and these strange, mysterious deaths, I I wanted to ask you about the Jim Morrison death because you have a lot of stuff in the book that I'd never even heard of, specifically uh, this thing about uh, the coffin or the grave being too small for his body, probably, and this thing about... Um, him befriending, like, I guess you'd almost say like a look-alike or someone who looked just like him and that there was a possibility that they were just mistaken and that it might, <laughs> that it might have been
1: this other guy. Or oh, something. my gosh. I mean, first of all, I'll tell you that uh, a lot of this I received from an interview I did with someone very close to Jim Morrison, his former brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea was that when you read No One Here Gets Out Alive, it actually ends kind of open-ended. Yeah. And when uh, Sugarman interviews uh, Pamela Corson, he asks her, he says, is Jim alive? And she has a strange answer. She says, well, if Jim were alive, he would have called me. Which is, yeah, which doesn't necessarily. not that strange? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, and, and there's more to this because, you know, I never stop researching. I'm always fascinated with it. But, you know, uh, according to Alan… Jim had a friend whose name was Dietmar. He was a German uh, musician looked very much like Morrison. He uh, Alan told me he saw a photograph, and he couldn't believe how similar they were. So he's saying, what would have happened? He doesn't necessarily believe it, but he said, you know, what if this guy had actually died and Morrison had his way out? Because Morrison had told the other doors that he could see himself dropping out of the music business and becoming a, a, a businessman and putting on a three-piece suit. And I also did an interesting interesting show with Robbie and Ray on Coast to Coast, if you remember that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. And which is kind of odd, I have to tell you. Because I don't know if Ray remembers this, but we did a segment on Jim Morrison being alive or dead on VH1 Confidential. And in this video, Ray says on, December, on uh, July 8, 2001, I'm going to be like a with Doors fans around the world, and I'm going to say, open the box, open the box. I've got it on video. Yeah. But on Coast to Coast, Ray says, no, no, Jim's not dead. That's disgusting. I don't even think about it. Why would he change his mind like that? Ray is the one who stood on his grave and said the grave is too short to be Morrison's. So did Dinsmore. Now, my own personal belief is I think Jim Morrison is dead and he's buried at Pair chaise. But I also think if anybody could have faked his death, it would be Morrison, who had an IQ reportedly over 150.
0: Yeah, exactly. He was in all that legal trouble, too, out in Florida and everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were issues. Listen, when he was put on trial in Florida, in Miami, he left the country before the sentencing. His attorney was convinced that if Jim Morrison were put in federal prison, Morrison would be dead. Now think of this. Who were the leaders of the counterculture? Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and a guy named John Lennon. Yeah. Okay. When Jimi Hendrix died in September 1970, Janis Joplin said, Wow, I sure am glad I didn't die today. Hendrix would have got all the press. She died <laughs> two weeks later. She was dead two weeks later. When Morrison was in Florida and he heard of... Uh, Hendricks and Joplin's death, who he knew, he said, well, you're drinking with number three. And when he died in Paris, you know, it's it's odd. Um, When Morrison's body was found, he was in a bathtub with his back against the faucets. I don't know very many people who take a bath with their back against the faucets.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Which may mean that he was placed there. Now, there's a new book that claims that Morrison had died at a club in Paris in a bathroom stall, that he was given an overdose of heroin. But we're also told that Morrison didn't like heroin. He liked cocaine, but not heroin. And one of Sugarman's ideas was that maybe Pamela Corson had purchased heroin, told him it was cocaine, didn't say anything about it. He snorted it. He died in the bathtub because they see blood droppings. But if he had died in that, and the Electric Circus, I think, the club in Paris. The two men who sold him the drugs took his body back to the uh, hotel and put him there in the the apartment. And that means that Pamela Corson, if that were true, Pamela Corson wasn't with him that night. So her story's wrong. But here's the odd part. This is new. When um, the undertaker was called, the mortuary, Mm -hmm. somehow or another they were closed. So they took a body bag and they stuffed Morrison's bag body in the bag, and they filled it with dry ice, zipped him up, and Pamela Corson slept next to the body for two nights. Oh, yikes. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Now, here's the issue. They had to make the medical examiner in Paris believe that Morrison had died of natural causes, because if they had found the drugs in his system, the next thing would be somebody would have to be arrested. Yeah. And who would that be? That would be Pamela Corson and the person who provided the heroin. I think they may have called him the Count. But what's interesting, some stuff I've just found out, is they believe that the source of the heroin that killed Joplin may have been used in Morrison's death. You know? Oh, that's So, strange. I mean, that's kind of odd. Because when Janis Joplin died, there were like, I forget how many people, maybe 12, 14 people had died of a heroin overdose from the same batch of heroin because it was so pure. Yeah that they use too much. So if that's true, when uh, Ray Manzarek asked Bill Siddons, the Doors' manager, to go to Paris, the last thing he said to Bill was, he said, and Bill, make sure, which meant make sure that Morrison is in that coffin. Yeah. Well, when Siddons got there, it was a simple wood veneer coffin with its lid screwed in place. The only person who saw the body was... Uh, Marianne Faithful, the story goes, who, uh, boyfriend, may have sold the heroin, and they had to leave Paris quickly, and Pamela Corson, who couldn't stand to look at the body because it was all bruised and blue. And supposedly, the story goes, the corpse was buried in a navy blue suit. So. The odd thing is that when they buried him at Père Lachaise, and he had been to Père Lachaise only a few days before his death, and he said, you know, I, I consider myself a poet. This would be a great resting place because, you know, there's a number of famous poets buried here. This would be where I would choose. Yeah. So the French government was told that the man who had died to be buried at Père Lachaise was James Douglas Morrison, and he was a poet. He wasn't a rock star. They didn't say that. <laughs> so when they buried him, I think there were only eight people at the funeral. But Pamela Corson leased the grave, which expired in 2001. Now, I can tell you, I don't know if you've been to Peril and Oh, yeah, I've been or, there. All right. When was the first time you were there? You remember?
0: It was the year 2000, actually.
1: Okay. Did they have the graffiti on the tombstones when you walked in?
0: Uh, not so much. I think I had seen the Oliver Stone movie and expected
1: mm-hmm. more. And then when I got there, it was sort of le- it was less. Well, less let me less, tell you know. why. When I went, it was in the 90s first time I was there. Yeah. And when you walked into Père Lachaise, you could see Jim with an arrow. Jim. And the eye became an arrow pointing another direction. The closer you got, you had a number of uh, lyrics from the Doors songs that were on the, the tombs. Yeah. And finally, you found the grave. So the Morrison family, of uh, the French were decided, they were pretty well decided they were going to start the 2001 Jim Morrison World Tour and dig him up and send him back to L.A. Yeah because there were so many things going on in the cemetery. When the wall came down, a bunch of Eastern Europeans came over. They had a big party at the grave of Jim Morrison. It uh, set a car on fire. It was a disaster. So the French, you know, they could never understand why Jim Morrison's grave is one of the top five attractions in Paris. Yeah, yeah. The Eiffel Tower... Jim Morrison, and when you go to the cemetery, you say Jim, pointing toward Morrison's grave. But Frederick Chopin is buried there. You never see an arrow that says Fred, pointing (laughs) that way. Yeah, you know it only goes to Jim. So you know the French were going to dig him up, send him back, and then when they got close, the Morrison family agreed to clear all the graffiti and pay to have that done. There's security by his grave. When you were there, you probably saw an officer on duty. Yeah, there was, yep. And there was probably a security gate, a little, you know, now if you go by, there's like a little metal security fence around his grave. But first of all, when you could just walk up, and every time you go there, you're going to find a group of people standing around his grave. Oh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's so highly sought of, and there's a security device there. And, I mean, the whole thing is it, its fascinating. Uh, the last time I was there was a couple of years ago, and Robbie and Ray were going to be there. I missed them by a day, because there was going to be a, a Doors concert in Paris. Now, that would have been something to have attended on the anniversary of Morrison's death in July, but... You know, sometimes time is out of joint, as Hamlin says, you know, and I missed it. But uh, just the whole idea that the grave was there, they were going to dig it up, They were going to look into the grave and see who was there. Alan Graham said, well, imagine what would happen at the, the grave and there was nobody there.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Now, the other thing that's fascinating for me, we can talk about it some other time, is the Morrison family reunion. How many people claim to be the children of Jim Morrison? Or, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's amazing to me. I mean, I know a guy. Who has an interesting story. And then there's a guy in California's name's Cliff Morrison who, you know, they've, the Morrison estates at war with. And, uh, you know, it's just really, it's just, you know, Jim Morrison has such a mystique that all these people claim to be his children across the country. And I think I've talked to Robbie Krieger about it. Robbie gets sort of a kick out of it because he doesn't believe any of it. But, you know, it's amazing. And then I get a phone call, uh, I, they asked me to do coast-to-coast Coast one night. They couldn't get in touch with me. So there was a guy who claimed to be a promoter who knew that Jim Morrison was living in Oregon. Yeah. So I did everything I could to get coast-to-coast. Coast. We, we were going to go up and check the whole story out, do DNA everything. And uh, But the guy would never bring up the guy claiming to be Morrison. He would never say he could guarantee we could talk to him. He said, the only thing I can promise you guys is a ham sandwich. Too. I don't know about you, but a flying to Oregon for a ham sandwich is not appeal to me at all.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you know, there may be a there. bunch of ham
1: there but it might <laughs> So, you know, I, I mean, I'm pretty well convinced that's not the story. But uh but as we talk about it, every day there's something new that comes out with it that makes it more fascinating. Yeah. And uh long may they live. And uh it's always great material for new books
0: absolutely absolutely i want to give a hat tip to jeff ritzman of paratopia the podcast who uh, asked me to pursue this line of questioning regarding Jim Morrison? So, wanted to make Great. sure I gave him credit for that. All right, now I got some quick ones here. Just quick ones. Uh, you don't have to spend a long time on these. Okay. Um, we have a guy on my forum. Uh, the US of E.com is the forum, the official Banal of America forum. He's a drummer, and he's been one of the guys that's been requesting you for a while. So, I figured I'd give cool. him a, a sweet reward here and let him know that I was interviewing you. And uh so the guy his name is Theorist that's his thing and he's a drummer you know it's the old adage you give him a foot they take a mile so he <laughs> sent me a few questions here okay and uh some of them I think you probably can have uh you know a short answer and then other ones you might want to extrapolate but uh the first one is who is the most famous rock musician you ever met in person and what was he slash she like
1: well wow. my gosh uh man I've met a lot of really interesting people. Um, I have a friend who's a drummer there at Clapton who did a session in Nashville, so Clapton was there. Uh, I've met a number of, of great performers. It, it's just really hard to sit there and say who's the most famous because most of these guys are more classic oriented. Uh, and I have a lot of people that I, that I really admire, like uh, I don't know if you remember Delaney and Bonnie, but Bonnie Bramlett, I think, is a great voice, Jen Joplin of the of the '60s, and uh, I'm working on a screenplay with her. So I'm going to have to listen to. I'm going to have to think about that because uh, I know. Well, Robbie Krieger, I guess you'd say he may be pretty well known from the Doors, and uh, the list goes on and on. I have yeah, to think about it, one. but yeah, it's good. I mean, uh, I get to meet a lot of people, I get to talk to a lot of people, and uh, I know a lot of people who are in major bands with a number of great artists. And most people I meet, you know, whether it's uh, in a lot of the great rock stars that I've that I've got to talk to or or, or have something to do with. The one thing I have to tell you is everybody. It's pretty normal because everybody has the same thoughts, the same fears. They have kids. They, they want their kids to grow up in a safe world. They want them to be, uh, educated. They want them to be, uh, happy. And everybody worries about, you know, what do I have? And, you know, a lot of things, you know, you'd, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of things that go along with it. So I've met some pretty famous rock stars and some people in country music and, and everything else. My attorney, uh, handles a lot of, uh, Interesting people too that we get together with, but you know it's it's been fun. So I I, I couldn't say who is more famous than anyone else. Yeah. I'm usually I'm a guitar player. I like guitar players. So he likes drummers. I have to, uh, Jamie Oldacre. I guess is probably the most famous drummer I know. He played with Clapton and Ace Fraley and all that. A number of bands, even the Tractors. He's a great drummer.
0: All right, there you go. That's what, that was probably the toughest one. <laughs> yeah, probably was. Keep it out there. Um, do you know of any interesting trivia about the rock band Rush?
1: Oh my gosh, Rush got in a little trouble. Someone was trying to say that, you know, Rush was uh some sort of satanic symbols that were used, which is not true. Neil Peart had always said, Look, we don't do this and this none of this is true, so they were sort of brought into it. Uh you know, Rush probably the strange thing about Rush is why in the heck are they not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Yeah. Yeah, that's really You know, cool. I mean, come on. I mean, there's not been anything that goes along with it. Neil Peart is a brilliant lyricist. Getty Lee and Alex, I mean, they're fabulous musicians. And, I mean, I love their stuff. I grew up with them. I've seen them perform several times. And uh even though their name was sort of darkened because of, you know, and when we talk about darkened, you know, one thing, it reminds me of the Salem Witch Trials where you had these, visionary girls who could use spectral evidence against people. They could see the yellow bird. Nobody else saw it, but everybody condemned everybody else. So Rush sort of fits into the yellow bird phenomena, you know, with the visionary girls, but not anything dark against the band. I guess the only thing I have, I think we need to start a movement to have Rush in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, though.
0: I'll join up with that, yeah. Uh, Good. Speaking to uh, what you're saying there, I love the part of the book. Where you mentioned, I had never heard of this band, Wasp, that was accused of having – Blackie Lawless, yeah. Yeah, that was accused of – that their name supposedly had some kind of satanic ring, and his response was, no, it stands for we are sexual perverts.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's like Paul Stanley saying that when KISS came out and the idea was it was kids in Satan's service or knights in Satan's service, Paul Stanley said, no, it stands for kids in Sunday school. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, sometimes there's double meanings to everything. And A C D C, you know, they got a they got a bad rap too. I mean Rush came out lucky because A C D C was supposed to stand for Antichrist, Devil's Child or After Christ, the Devil Comes, and then the lightning bolt's supposed to be a satanic S. I haven't seen the satanic alphabet. I have no idea <laughs> yeah. Yeah. what it looks like. But it actually came from their sister's sewing machine, A C D C, you know. So that's Probably anticlimactic.
0: Yeah, but it's still uh, – yeah, I like that part of the story too, yeah. And I, I think you touched on this a little bit, but uh, where is the plane being stored that Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper died in? Who has it?
1: Jerry Dwyer has it, and uh, Dwyer's Flying Service is the company that leased the plane. And the story goes originally. Now, you know, we live in a country where strange things happen. If you remember Bonnie and Clyde, when they were gunned down, <laughs> you know, by the FBI, people went around the car and picked up pieces of broken windshield glass and was dipping it in their blood for souvenirs. <sighs> and one guy even took out a knife to cut off Clyde Barrow's ear before he was stopped. Oh, my God. So after the plane crash, there was a rumor that the plane was going to be chopped up in little bitty pieces to make keychains out of. Jesus. Which to me would be the same thing, you know. But obviously that was another story that wasn't true. And then the story went that the plane was secretly buried. And now we find out that's not true. But, you know, I have a friend, Peggy Sue Guerin, and Peggy Sue is in constant contact with the Dwyers, And she knows where the plane is. And uh, she has been promised the opportunity to see it. And what she wants to do is lead a new forensic study of the plane, and maybe we can find out exactly what happened on the day the music died, because yeah. there's much better techniques today than there was in 1959.
0: Oh, for sure. And and speaking of uh, what you're what you're talking about here with with these these weird death totems, uh, I don't know if you heard the news about Michael Jackson, but someone's trying to sell the syringe. That no. they used to, uh, they gave him the final dose of the, uh, of of the drug that killed him there, because I guess apparently it wasn't needed anymore in the evidence, mm. and someone took it, and now it's someone's trying to auction it.
1: Only in America. <laughs> uh, I will tell you this. I mean, you want to get into these strange strange stories. I got a phone call uh, when I was. Well, I was at some time I was going to a Beatle convention. I was just going to hang out and look at for mem- uh, memorabilia. And I got a call from a, a person who was brokering the Mark David Chapman album cover, Double Fantasy, that Lennon had signed, uh, you know, a few hours before his death. And the album cover came with forensic powder. It came with a letter of authenticity from the police chief in New York thanking the person for turning the album in as evidence. And uh, the guy wanted to sell it. And it was over $200,000, $250,000 is what he wanted for it. But, you know, for me, it almost made me, sort of gave me a sick feeling in my stomach. I mean, I I couldn't even think about even touching that album or even looking at it. So I can imagine I'd have the same feeling with the Michael Jackson syringe.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's just even... Or the big bopper's coffin, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, we're almost at the end of his questions. Now, what about uh, the Woodstock Festival? Do you have any interesting trivia related to
1: that? Well, it's kind of funny. Um, I know Leo Lyons, and here's other people popping in my mind from 10 years after. I don't know if you remember them with Alvin Lee, but if you watch the movie Woodstock, uh, probably one of the greatest songs recorded in that movie was the song I'm Going Home by Alvin Lee. And Leo was telling me that when they landed at Woodstock, well, first of all, he told me that he probably made 500 pounds off the whole thing, playing uh, the movie, the records, everything, so they were all sort of ripped off. He told me that he rode in the helicopter with Hendrix, and that when they landed at Woodstock, Pete Townsend comes running up to him, and he says, don't eat anything, don't drink anything. He said, they have acid and everything. Don't touch anything. And he said they went on stage to play right after the rain. And he said when they were on stage, one of the reasons they were playing so fast was they were watching the cables arc with electricity. he thought, oh, my God, we're going to be fried at any moment up here. And uh, one of the big questions was at the end of their performance, somebody lays a watermelon up on the stage, and uh, Alvin Lee takes it, puts it on his shoulder, and walks off with it. But he assured me they didn't need it; they remembered what Pete Townsend said. So that's a pretty funny story about Woodstock and the people who were there. Yeah. It's pretty good. I like that one.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I had the unfortunate experience of being at the uh, 30th anniversary one. And the riots. and
1: (laughs) Burn, baby, burn festival.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was not quite the same. uh,
1: (laughs) What happened to the three days of peace and love? I mean...
0: yeah. Once they started charging like $6 for a bottle of water, I think that went out the window. So, yep. Yeah, yep. It was pretty. Uh, it was a pretty remarkable weekend. Um, and his final question is probably a pretty easy one. Is it true that drummer Buddy Rich could not read music?
1: Well, he taught at Juilliard, I believe. I have a friend who's a Sessions drummer in Nashville. His name's Clyde Brooks, who studied under Buddy Rich. So as far as reading music, you know, the Beatles didn't read music. So... You know, I'm not sure I've never heard anything about Buddy Rich not reading music, but I know he taught at Juilliard. I think Al Cooper's been up there. But, uh, if he didn't, he taught Buffy because, uh, he he had lessons that he taught in in drumming. It it would be hard for me to believe he'd teach at Juilliard without being able to. Because most sessions drummers, you know, they can write out charts. And, uh, you know, they don't even play instruments, but they can do the charts. And uh, I would think that would be hard. Now, I may be wrong, but, you know, I've, I would find it hard to believe that uh, he wouldn't be able to, to do that.
0: That reminds me of something I read in the book here in uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, just that, just how prolific Jimmy Page was as a Sessions artist that surprisingly oh, doesn't get any, or like, you know, doesn't get as much credit for, or he was on all these amazing famous songs and stuff as a Sessions artist that yeah. you never I mean knew about.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's he's the guy who's playing on Baby, Please Don't Go by them. He plays on uh, Here Comes the Night. And probably a couple of my favorite songs was uh, Sunshine Superman by Donovan. That's Jimmy Page. And Hurdy Gurdy Man, one of my all-time favorite ones. And uh, there's a legend about that album that not only did Jimmy Page play on it, but so did John Bonham and so did uh, John Paul Jones. Oh, wow. So maybe that's why that album sounds so great, and I think Alan Holdsworth played guitar on it as well. But I mean, Jimmy Page was a master sessions guitar player. I mean, the stuff he did was incredible, and uh, you know he was the he was the technical end behind Zeppelin when they started. And and of course, you know, Zeppelin had the idea that you know there was a secret contact, you know, contract they'd made with the devil. They had three of them signed and one didn't. So you know, normally you ask who are the members of Led Zeppelin. You know? Yeah. And, and people will answer, they'll go, Jimmy Page, uh, Robert Plant, John Bonham. And then they forget about John Paul Jones because the legend is that Jones was the one who didn't sign. Yeah. And most people don't remember him. Isn't that odd? But, you know, just as, as the thing goes, I mean, that band knocked the Beatles out of number one, 69, and they were people that no one had heard of. 18-year-old Jimmy, uh, wait, sorry, 18-year-old Robert Plant, 18-year-old John Bonham, uh, the great sessions player Jimmy Page, who had been with the Yardbirds, and then a, uh, a studio musician, John Paul Jones, and they come out of nowhere and take the top of the charts. So maybe Robert Johnson did have something at that crossroads.
0: Maybe, maybe. I'm always reminded of uh, one of my favorite guitarists from back then that you just don't hear much about is uh, Mike Bloomfield. Oh,
1: Bloomfield. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: yeah. Some of that stuff he did with Dylan was just unreal.
1: You know, it's, it's kind of funny because when they came in to do uh, Lock of Rolling Stone, Al Cooper was there to play guitar.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm thinking what, of that. Yeah, I'm thinking of that story. Yeah, I've heard him tell that story. Yeah,
1: yeah where he talks about, oh, man, I, after I heard Bloomfield, I knew it wasn't playing. And he said, yeah, I can play organ. And he said, thank God somebody turned B B3 on because I didn't even know how to turn it on. And he said, if you listen, you can hear I'm just a little bit behind the guitar as I'm watching the chords, you know, as I'm playing. Yeah. So it is a great story that Cooper was on, and so was Bloomfield. And of course, gets for guitar players. If it wasn't for Mike Bloomfield and early Eric Clapton, Gibson Les Pauls wouldn't be as valuable as they are today.
0: That's for sure, yeah. Now you've teased us here that you're working on a new book, and mm-hmm. uh, this this one here I have, uh, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses came out uh, about six years ago, so you're overdue here for a book. I'm looking forward to seeing what you've come up with in the last few years, so uh, you know, tease us a little bit about what's coming up for you and what you have in the pipeline.
1: Well, I tell you, the reason it's been six years is because I decided to devote my time to television and film, which I found out is a nightmare trying to get in, because in Hollywood, the answer is it's the longest no. Okay, <laughs> I need to write a book on that. But I have collected some great stories, and I will tease you, because I want to have two stories in this new book that are the most terrifying stories that you'll ever hear in rock and roll. Really? I'm talking about exorcism, demonic possession.
0: Wow. All right. That's, does that's, that get your interest? That does get my interest, yeah. Well, we'll have to have you back for that for sure. <laughs> I'd be glad to do that. And uh, as I said, uh, the website is rgarypatterson.com, and it'll be all linked up at the website, our website, so folks can find that. And the walrus was, Paul, definitely still available. What about Hellhounds on their Trail? Is that still available, or has that sort of been in, uh, you know, in- introduced into the other book?
1: Well, it it was introduced into the other book, but the problem is that Hellhounds on Their Trail is a cult classic, which means that you can find a copy for—I think right now it's going for thirty-five bucks, anywhere from thirty-five to one hundred and forty dollars a copy. And I have no plans on putting it back out. If I do, I might put it in Kindle or something like that. But. you know, take a walk on the dark side is the way to go. You get everything in Hellhounds. You don't have to pay the high, ridiculous price. But if you want a collectible, you know, I guess you can find one. There you but go. It, it's been fun.
0: And folks can pick up those books through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all all places that you can find books.
1: Uh, yes, all all fine bookstores. Absolutely. And if you can't find the book at your bookstore, then obviously it's not a fine bookstore.
0: <laughs> That's great. I love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't thank you enough, Gary, for coming on the show and and giving us the extra time here and and covering so much stuff. I really had a lot of fun talking to you, and and, um, it was just a blast. I'm already looking forward to our next conversation, and I can see why you've just made so many appearances on Coast to Coast and and other radio shows because it's just really a pleasure talking to you and sitting back and listening to these stories. So once again, thank you so much. I'm already looking forward to having you back on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Tim. I'm looking forward to it as well, and uh, I've enjoyed the opportunity, and I hope your listeners enjoy as well.
0: That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to R. Gary Patterson. I love the conversation this week. It is definitely not the last time you'll be hearing from RGP on BOA. Check out his books, The Walrus Was Paul, and Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll, Myths, Legends, and Curses. And be sure to stop over at his website, www.rgarrypatterson.com. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got a couple of emails, one short, one long, one mean, one nice. So let's open up the mailbag. The first one comes from no name listed, no hometown listed. Uh, I could extrapolate, I suppose, the name from the email address, but even that is a bunch of gobbledygook. Here's what this person has to say. I'm sorry, but your voice is a turnoff. A new host is needed. That's it. What a depressing email to receive. I wrote this guy back and sort of said, Hey, you know, we do have a raw recording style. Maybe that has something to do with it. Or maybe it's just my voice. I don't know. And of course the dude or the woman never wrote back, which is uh, par for the course with the haters. Once you respond to their email, and they never actually get back to you. If your problem, sir or madam, is with my voice, uh, I suggest you go listen to another program. This is the way the program is going to be. It's going to be Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. And if you don't like it, there's lots of other shows out there. I won't be offended. Go on and go listen to those programs. Or send me an email with some constructive feedback. That always helps. I guess I should appreciate that he apologized that my voice was a turnoff. So thank you for that. The next email is a little bit more uplifting. It comes from Frank in Bristol, UK, one of our international listeners. Here's what he has to say. Just a brief email. Wanted to let you know how much I am enjoying Series 5, as I have enjoyed the others. Listening to your output is a breath of fresh air. I also really enjoy the stuff that Greg Bishop and Karen Dolan do. I can only echo what you and your guests have said a number of times. It is no good adopting one thesis and sticking to it aggressively, in many cases, whilst dissing the views of everyone else, all too common in ufology. The only way that anyone will get any closer to solving this 60-plus year mystery, which is UFOs, is by looking at all the theories and trying to think away around the whole thing. We almost need a particle accelerator of theories to collide the many different views and see what emerges. Basically, 60 years on, we are no closer to cracking the mystery, tricksters, gin, extraterrestrials, atmospheric phenomena, modern-day fairies, some of our own exotic technology, etc., etc., or a combination of the above. Who knows? One thing's for sure, if they are extraterrestrial and involved in an interplanetary disinformation project, they are doing a great job, as no one knows what the hell is going on. Keep up the good work, and I will head to PayPal shortly. Best wishes, Frank in Bristol, UK. See, folks, that's the kind of email I like getting. Not just because he sort of agrees with my point of view on stuff, but at least he had something constructive to say. And if he had stuck in there at the end, by the way, your voice is a huge turnoff, I could probably accept that. So thanks to Frank for writing in. Let me address what he has to say. I totally agree. I think that there is some kind of unified paranormal theory out there that will tie this all together at some point. And really, the world of ufology has dropped the ball in a big way because I'm stunned that it's taken 60 years and we still really don't know anything more about UFOs than we did back in the Roswell days, back when this whole thing sort of first started. So I'm down on ufology in that way, but I still salute the legends who have built up this field and still respect, obviously, a lot of the research. And feel like maybe we're on the cusp of something if we can start connecting all these dots together in the various esoteric realms. I feel like that was kind of a rambling answer, but I guess that's the best way to put it. Thank you for checking out the show, Frank. Dig into the archive if you have not already. And thank you in a huge way for your PayPal donation. It really goes a long way towards keeping BOA Audio on the proverbial airwaves for all of our great listeners here in America and, like Frank, over in the UK and around the world. So, there you go. Those are the emails this week. One from a disgruntled listener who does not like my voice and pretty much hates me, I think. And from the nice guy Frank in Bristol, UK. Frank, you're the man, mystery person who wrote to me, you are evil and I don't like you. <laughs> If you want to get in touch with me, there's several ways to do it. I'll go through the list really quickly for you. There is, of course, going to banalofamerica.com, B I N N A L L O F America.com. Click the contact button and uh, punch in your email that way, or write to B O A at Hotmail.com. And the final way is the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Amazing folks joining up, becoming a part of the very cool community that is theusofe.com. It has been All of America's Paranormal Playground, the official BOA forum. Those are the three methods, email, contact button, forum, and also you can hit me up on Twitter, Facebook, and MySpace. I check all that stuff as well. I'm overwhelmed by these social networks and uh, no matter what you write to me, I'll check it out, I'll read it, I'll try and respond as soon as possible. I've got a bunch of emails here still that I've been meaning to get to, but I will soon, I promise. Constructive criticism of the show, I definitely want to hear it. But if you hate my voice, dig on into someone else's podcast and leave me alone. All right, up next, let's thank the BOA staff. They are, of course, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Sena, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. They've been sending me all kinds of stuff over the last week. We have a ton of columns in the pipeline to be posted at Benall of America. I can't run through them right now. Folks want me to sort of tighten up the back end of the show. So just head on over to Benall of America and check out the columns from the BOA staff. We say it all the time, but if you're not reading those columns, you're really only getting half the story. They cover a whole realm of other stuff that does not make it onto the BOA Audio Airwaves, so you definitely want to dig into their material as well. Beenallofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. We've reached the end of the line here on another edition of BOA Audio, and you know what that means. It's time for me to come at you with my handout and ask for a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. I've already gotten a bunch of emails from folks asking about the P.O. Box, so we're definitely going to get it set up as soon as possible, hopefully by the next time you hear my voice. But for those folks who don't mind the PayPal and can make a donation, Just head on over to Banal of America or the BOA Audio Archive page. Click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the whole process. It's really quite simple. You can use a credit card. You don't need a bank account online or anything like that. It's really, really easy. I make donations and purchases via PayPal all the time. Of course, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, our guest is Linda Godfrey, author of Hunting the American Werewolf and the Beast of Bray Road. She's going to be joining us for a discussion on the bipedal canine cryptids phenomenon. And for those folks who aren't familiar with this whole thing, it's sort of like a werewolf meets Bigfoot, uh sightings that have been going on in the midwest and subsequently really around the country linda godfrey is the one who put this thing on the map a few years ago and it has exploded over the last few years for those folks who listen to our sister program the lost cast they know me and jeremy Vanny have sort of been joking around about the absurdity of these bipedal canine cryptids at the end of the program as i've been hyping future editions of boa audio but really As I sort of teased at the end of last week's program with relation to this whole rock and roll episode you heard this week, you definitely don't want to turn your nose up at this upcoming edition of the program. Because having read Hunting the American Werewolf, I was very surprised by the compelling evidence that's going on here with these bipedal canine cryptid sightings. There's a whole lot more to it than just misidentifications or the Hollywood version of Werewolves. We're talking about a whole different thing here, so you definitely want to check it out. During the conversation next week, we're going to cover tons of stuff. First, we're going to dive into the Gable film hoax that was revealed on a recent edition of Monster Quest. Linda's going to detail the entire saga of the Gable film as it unfolded over the last year and a half and provide her thoughts on the hoax in general. Then we're going to cover the bipedal canine cryptid phenomenon in depth from a variety of angles, including how Linda first began investigating the phenomenon, how the cryptozoological community responded to her research, the typical descriptions of the BCC, and how they differ from bears, as well as the classic Hollywood werewolf descriptions. We're going to hear about the water connection to these wolfmen and the burial mound connections which Linda has uncovered. Truly compelling and fascinating stuff there. We'll talk about window zones, we'll talk about alternative theories to the bipedal canine cryptids, and a whole bunch more. I'm just scratching the surface here. There's tons of material in this conversation. All in all, it really is a revealing look at a truly unique cryptid with, as I said, the researcher who really helped put it on the map, Linda Godfrey. It's... A Be There or Be Squared edition of BOA Audio, definitely one you're going to want to check out, going down a whole different road here and a very creepy road, the bipedal canine cryptid road. And that'll be coming at you next week on All of America at BOA, of course. And on that note, we'll close the book here on another edition of BOA Audio. Once again, big, big, super huge thanks to our Gary Patterson for coming on the show Thanks to the listeners for writing in on this week's BOA Audio listener feedback. And most of all, thanks to the great BOA Audio listening audience. You guys are the best. I know it's been sort of rough and tumble here this season, especially as 2010 has begun and unfolded. And I want to just thank you all for your support and your patience with the program. We're going to keep trying to produce the best program we can for all of you compelling conversations with top-notch esoteric researchers, and stuff that you're really going to want to hear. And, as you may have noticed here with this week's episode, we're going to have fun. Because that's really what this program is all about. Having fun in the world of esoterica. Let's not take it too seriously, but let's ask some interesting questions as well. That's what Banal of America is all about. And I thank you, the listeners, for sticking with us all these years. Until next time, this is Tim Banal, thanking you once again for listening. And signing off.